what is it that makes us different? Like, how come we have, you know, skyscrapers and helicopters and spaceships and medicine and uh, all the stuff that animals don't have? Because they're cool and animals are dorks. (laughs) (laughs) Case closed. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading The Science Discworld 2, The Globe, or Where There's a Will, There's a Way. And our guest is science comedian and public health nerd, Alanta Colley. Welcome, Alanta. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it feels, it's, somehow, this is one of those times we have a guest on and we're like, I can't believe it's taken until episode 47. <laughs> Um, because we've both known you for quite a long time and we've both worked with you through sci-fi comedy science debates that you do and many other things, of course, as well. I, I just I, sh- I feel like I should point out that you are a self-described public health nerd. I didn't just throw that in. No, we know you're mean, Ben. You just, you just call people <laughs> nerds. <laughs> I don't even see that as an insult, but I just wanted to... Can you, what does that mean, public health nerd? Uh, it's a good question. When you get a Master's of Public Health, they don't give you a tidy title like doctor or, or vet or candle maker. You sort of have a degree in public health and then you're sort of released onto the world. So, uh, yeah, it's really up to you how you convey any knowledge or understanding of public health to other people. And I feel nerd nerd is a, is a good word. And, uh, yeah, it just feels right at this time in my life. Yeah, PH me. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, it, if there's any time in the history of the world when we really needed public health nerds, it's now. So thank you for being that and for being a science comedian, two of my favourite things smashed together. What what drew you into that as a discipline? Uh, public health. Um, I really got into it while I was living in Cambodia. I, I wanted to pursue a discipline that made lives of people better in some capacity. And uh, I actually met some people who had studied public health. I hadn't actually really heard of it or understood what it was prior to, to sort of this moment in my life. And it looked at systems and it focused on prevention of diseases. Yeah, sort of moving away from the sort of medical situation where a person turns up to a doctor already sick. It's more about stopping that from ever actually happening. And it can happen at that sort of community level. It can happen at society level, people actually working together on it. So it's a sort of, it's a nice nexus between science and society. And it's also quite um, empowering, I think, the, the sort of knowledge you gain through public health about yeah, that enables you to look after your own well-being as well, and the interconnectivity of your health with other people, which we are now more than ever extremely aware of. So that's mm, mm. that's what got me into it. Yeah, and then that kind of got you into science comedy, right? Because you started off your first solo show was uh, about parasites. 
It was called Parasites Lost in a, I think this is a, a pun worthy <laughs> of Elizabeth Flux, which is. That is better than my usual stuff. Come on. That is, <laughs> oh, that is excellent. It's, they're of a piece, I feel. Uh, what, what, how did you get into doing it as comedy? Um, it was really taking two things that I loved and smooshing them together, which doesn't always work, you know, because I quite enjoy avocado and Vegemite, but they don't go together very well. And I like marshmallows and sleeping in, but they're not, again, a thing that necessarily go together. <laughs> These are all things that go together in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking now I really want veg- like Vegemite and avocado on yeah, toast. That would be great. It, actually, that probably, yeah, that was a bad example. How about Vegemite and marshmallows? We'll go with those two excellent mm. things, maybe not together. Yeah, I don't I don't think I'd be into that. I don't think it'd be terrible. I don't think it'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. But you, you, it's somewhere in between for you, Liz. Okay. Now, this is good. We're learning things about each other this episode. <laughs> um Which, I mean, look, uh, I feel like we should probably acknowledge, if you're listening to this in the future, uh, this is being recorded during Melbourne's (laughs) sixth lockdown. So everyone's listening to this in the future. If they're listening to it right now, (laughs) that's really spooky. Well, (laughs) And if they're listening to it in the past, they have done something (laughs) magical that we do not even understand yet. But maybe Mm. this book will help us because there's there's Mm -hmm. some time travel nonsense going on here. It's true. Uh, but I feel also that, you know, your particular blend of expertise and talents are going to be very useful with this book, Atlanta. I think it's, I think it's going to work out for us. I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, because we are here to read the science of Discworld to the globe, not to read it. Like you hopefully have already read it. We've certainly have. And we're going to discuss it. And it's not, I mean, we previously talked about the science of Discworld, the original. If you haven't read the book, and I know there are some listeners who might be one of them who listen to the podcast, either never having read the book or certainly not having read it recently. So just as a a quick heads up, it is a blend of nonfiction and fiction. The way it works is there's alternating chapters of fiction, which we will discuss as as a kind of plot. And then there's nonfiction chapters, which are about science that is kind of connected to the plot to a greater or lesser extent, as I'm sure we will discuss. So that's what we're going to talk about, which actually, just before we get into that, this is a book written by three authors, but we really focus on one of them. Alenta, you, you've you read plenty of Pratchett before. Uh, an odd bit and piece here and there, yep. Where, what got you into Pratchett? What was your entry? I entered Pratchett from being a, a very big Douglas Adams fan and understanding that, and I'm sure I'm not the first of your 46 prior guests to uh, a, <laughs> sorry, uh, to have made that connection. But I think uh, Pratchett for me was um, almost a way of dealing with the grief of sort of reached the end of the literature from Douglas Adams and such an incredible mind of both quantity and quality Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is still my go-to. Waking up at 3 a.m. and needing something soothing to get back to sleep. I actually listened to it at 3 a.m. last night. There's actually a beautiful summary at the end of the Audible book about how Douglas Adams was um, not uh, prolific in the way that Pratchett was, and that he would often disappear and take very long baths and could often be found in the bath when his editors were desperately trying to get him uh, to finish something that was due months ago. Um, uh, yes. 
<laughs> so anyway, I just think about that uh, contrast between Adams and Pratchett and just admire the sheer like amount of books that, that Pratchett's produced in, in his time. Yeah. I mean, there's a great new book, uh, which is just called 42, that's coming out soon, which is a collection of Adams's writing, like from his journals and notes, books and stuff. And a large amount of it is a, him complaining about how much he hated writing anything. <laughs> so, I feel like uh, all of us who are writers can somehow identify with this. Well, look, we should get into this book because it gets quite deep and we've got a lot mm. to talk about. So, we should begin, as we usually do, with a reading of The Blurb. The planet Earth has picked up a parasitic life form. Elves. They get everywhere. And they like humans to be superstitious fearful and frightened of thunder. They're after our future and must be stopped. But by who? Enter the wizards of the Unseen University, who, in the best-selling The Science of Discworld, unwittingly created Earth and our own universe. At the time, they quite failed to notice humanity. Well, we've only been around for a million years, so we're easily overlooked. But now, at last, they've found us. In The Science of Discworld 2, science writers Ian Stewart and Jack Cohen join forces again with fantasy author Terry Pratchett to see just what happens as the wizards battle against the elves. The Renaissance, for example, is given a push. London is replaced by a dozy Neanderthal village. The role of fat women in art is developed, and one very famous playwright gets born and writes The Play. The Globe is a unique book weaving together a fast-paced Discworld novelette with cutting-edge scientific commentary on the evolution and development of the human mind, culture, language, art, and science. The result, as the wizards grapple with the nature of good and evil, and history is rewritten several times over, is a fascinating and brilliantly original view of the world we live in. Okay, that was amazing, but it's like the longest blurb I've ever heard in my life. It's pretty good. And it's one of those, I've got the original edition, so it's in hardcover, and that's written, it's, you know, it's on the inside of the dust jacket. So it's got quite a long flap uh, to be written on. And then there's, then there's like the little author bios and photos. It's, it's cute because it's got the photo of the three of them together um, when Pratchett was being given his, I think it was his first honorary degree, and it was the university that Ian and, and Jack uh, or at least one of them worked at, and he made them honorary wizards of Unseen University at the same time. <laughs> so they're all wearing regalia, including big wizardy hats, which is very, it's very cute. It's a good photo. <laughs> I love that. So I like that a lot. Uh, but yeah, that's, I feel like that overview is very useful. And I kind mm. of wish actually that I'd read that blurb again before rereading the book. <laughs> I think that would have helped. Um, but it is a sequel. And as we get into it, like, the first chapter is the start of the fiction, which is set on Discworld. And it is a sequel to the the science of Discworld, wherein they have all this extra magical energy. They have to earth it or channel it into something. They channel it into a project which they'd put on the sort of, you know, back burner because they thought they'd never have enough magic to make it happen. And they create this sort of bottle universe, pretty much literally, although it's in like a little glass globe, looks like a, a big snow globe basically but it's got an entire universe in it that is cut off from the magic that fills the disc world and so it forms our universe or at least a version of our universe i it's it's weird hearing them use the term the planet earth in the blurb because i think about the world and the universe in the bottle as a version of earth not our earth is that how you thought of it yeah i think it it definitely got quite confusing at times with the scientific analysis of earth 
and round world and disc world, particularly I found with Narrativium, um, because Narrativium, mm. from what I understand, exists in Discworld. Yes. And does not exist in Round World, but does exist in Earth. Is that correct? Well, sort of, yeah. They get into this in the second chapter. And I, I think one of the reasons it's difficult to wrap your head around the way they talk about Narrativium is I think their metaphor is deeply flawed. Well, that's probably a bit harsh. It's not deeply flawed, but it's partially flawed because they talk about it like it's an, a physical element, like it's a, an, like a substance that you could find. And I think the way that they mm. describe it working in the disc world it really shouldn't be an element. It's more like gravitons or the Higgs boson field. You know, it affects the way things work in the universe, but it's not like a substance that you can mine out of the ground. But that is how they refer to it. Because what it does is it's like narrative imperative. It like makes stories happen. And then the way that they refer to it in our world is that we have a process in our minds that does the same thing. Like that's how our minds work, but there's nothing that makes that happen in the physical world. They kind of want to have it both ways and they use the same word yeah. for it. And I think that it, they, I think they do muddy that. And I, look, I think I'm just going to say straight up as we get into the start of this, I didn't think this was as good as the first one. And I think, uh, there's a thing that they say towards the end of the book that maybe explains why, but we'll get to that. Oh, past me. No, you won't. You forgot. Or rather, your brain was all fried and you left out a lot of things you wished you'd really talked about in this episode. So watch out for another footnote towards the end about where you might hear those thoughts. Uh, I agree with you, Ben, actually, about it not being as good as the first one, which surprised me because I thought that given the subject matter and that it was looking kind of at an era in history that I'm more interested in, and also like humans in general, like just naturally, that would be something that I was more drawn to than the more abstract concepts in the first one mm. but i i honestly and this is like something that normally wouldn't factor into my like podcast reading of something i'm i wasn't sure if that was just like the fatigue of lockdown making my brain actively resist taking in this book or if it was the book itself but i also felt like it didn't have a clear through line throughout i kept every time i went moved to a new chapter i'm like what are they working towards like what is the main goal i followed the fiction of it very clearly and i was like i'd love this as a novel but and i, I enjoyed the, what felt like fun facts thrown in to like bolster what was happening in the story but as a non-fiction narrative i didn't know what they were trying to say overall and at the end it kind of felt like they're like and here's the message and also we're putting in some more societal messages literally on the last page bye and that's kind of <laughs> that was yeah. my experience of the book i was i kept trying to tie it together to something bigger and not being able to find that and that to me made it hard to push through the nonfiction sections yeah it's a deeply ambitious undertaking i mean the sheer volume of areas of science that they dip into and a, a heap of it's not actually science so much as the, the history and philosophy of science and the key players as well so it's a huge ask to go on that journey through chemistry through quantum physics through evolution through biology mm. uh, just to name a few of the areas at the same time it's incredibly rich and i i'm overwhelmed by it as a text just the sheer ambitiousness of what they they covered in those those science chapters but i agree it was very much jumping backwards and forwards between the fictional world and the wizards were very much a bit of intellectual relief at times yeah. <laughs> going back to it 
Yeah, and it's, it was a shame that they're very short. The fiction chapters are much shorter mm. than the non-fiction chapters. This is true in the first book too, but I felt it in this one even more so. But I, I do love the fiction. And look, let's start by talking about the fiction because that is where the book starts mm. because it, it doesn't really pick up from the end of the previous one, but it does, mm. as I say, form a sequel. It opens with this delightful sequence of Mushroom Ridcully, Art Chancellor of Unseen University, having taken the wizards out to the woods- <laughs> To do a team bonding paintball fight exercise with magic. They're just shooting each other with paint out of their staves. It's great. This was interesting because like that made total sense to me, but there's several other things that they talk about him doing that make him a bit more of an administrator. I was like, is that really Ridcully? Because like later on, Ponder does essentially a PowerPoint presentation, and this is because Ridcully has said he wants people's ideas and plans to be properly explained. And I'm like, I'm sure he doesn't really, like, he famously doesn't care what people tell him in meetings. <laughs> so um, maybe it's just a, a plot where he gets something pretty to look at while he's not paying attention. I don't know. But yeah, uh, <laughs> that was, I found that quite interesting. But it was a lot of fun, this first sequence. Yeah. Oh, I um, had a bit of a misreading initially, and I thought they were trees. Like, I thought they were, like, disguised as trees, and I was, and cause I think it was because I was ready for it to be about Shakespeare based on the cover, and I'm like, oh, this is a Macbeth thing. They're doing a Macbeth thing. And then <laughs> then it was very much not that, and I was like, wait, okay. We'll, we'll start again. I mean, they kind of are disguised as trees. Yeah. Oh, well, okay, great. Then yeah. It's a Macbeth thing, and I was I mean- right. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I mean, they don't move while they're trees, but yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's very similar to the elven capacity projecting so others who see you perceive you as said tree. That was my my interpretation, yeah. Okay, good. All right, I was like, oh, I read that wrong, but yes. No, no, you didn't. But they anyway, they're out doing this, and it wasn't clear to me whether the wizards were accidentally in Round World or whether they're out in the woods near the university, which is where they're supposed to be doing this, and then Ridcully notices something is up and then takes them into Round World. I, w- I wasn't quite sure which one mm. of those it was, but I don't, it doesn't really matter because they, he notices something is up. There's like frost forming on his staff and he's like, this is not okay. It's not cool. And yeah, it's, <laughs> it's too cool. Uh, and <laughs> then, uh, they, they go into Round World. And the next thing we know about it is that Rincewind, who is the, <laughs> Egregious Professor for Cruel and Unusual Geography. Still the best title. Although he's got a he's got a whole mass of different titles now, Seven. which I thought was fun. They were so great. He's looking after the round world in his office and a message in a beer bottle appears next to it, which is from Ridcully saying, Hey, there's elves in here. Go and get Hex and Ponder and the librarian and sort this out. And also saying that they've found wizards. And you're like, what is going on? This is a lot. And that, that's our first bit of the fiction. But then they throw the intense physics at you and you're like, wait, no, that's, <laughs> this is the difficult bit. <laughs> they do. <laughs> I mean, at this stage, it's, I mean, this is where they introduce this idea of narrativium as a substance on the disc world. Again, as I say, I think that's a slightly off metaphor. I think it would have made more sense for it to be, yeah, more like a, a particle or a field. But they, they refer to a couple of other things too, like there's an element for gods which they were mentioned later in the book, which is called like deity of him or something. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> but yeah, the, even this first one, which partly is a quick recap of what happened last time, it goes into the Cartesian duality of mind. 
Like, okay, <laughs> they don't go into it in great detail, but that's that's a lofty idea. And they touch on other things, the idea of the anthropic principle and example of the formation of carbon in stars. And the unlikeliness of carbon, yeah. Yeah. Which I got lost in that bit as well. (laughs) This sort of sets up a a sort of thing that I felt recurred through the book is that they heap too many examples on. They don't need as many as they use. And sometimes that confuses the message of what they're trying to say because they introduce quite simply the idea of the anthropic principle, you know, this idea that we think it's amazing that we live in a universe that would allow us to exist. But it's like, well we exist in it so it has to allow us to exist like that's not surprising it could have been another universe but we wouldn't be here to wonder about it you know that's it we get it and then they do this much more in-depth one about the energy required to form carbon through nuclear fusion in stars from helium atoms which first form a beryllium atom and then you have a beryllium and a helium fused together and you're like well okay i I get this but also it's sidetracking from the point, I feel. Yeah, it was it's a very full book. As in, and at every point, like it never felt like anyone bluffing their way through or anything like that. It just felt like lots of knowledge, not enough pages. I don't yeah. know if that made sense. No, that's not even yeah. quite the way to put it. It was just, yeah, it's just jam-packed and it could have been pared back. Yeah. It's maybe like the entire of year 11 syllabus <laughs> in, an, in one book, scientific syllabus all in one place. There's a couple of places where it felt to me like they kind of sum up what they're trying to say. And one of those places is this first nonfiction chapter where they say, we tell stories and that we shall argue is the real secret of mind, which brings us back to Discworld because on Discworld, things really do work the way human minds think they work on Roundworld, especially when it comes to stories. And I think that's kind of the whole thing. Like they, everything else in the book is trying to flesh that out and explain how that came to be and why it has such an effect on us. And some of the examples they give and some of the stories they tell have a clear relation to that and, and add to our understanding of it. And other ones just felt like, I kind of already get this. Why are you telling me this other thing that explains it to me again? I didn't need to hear so much about barbarism versus tribalism. I felt like I got it the first time they did it and they kept bringing it back. And it was one of the things I was most interested in, but I was also like, it, it felt like it got harped on a bit much. I agree with that. And I feel like they never gave a very clear description of what they meant by either of those terms either. Yeah, and then when they went on to be like, so when you talk about a, like a barbarian nursery story or something like this, and it felt like the example they gave didn't fit. It could have been either barbarianism or tribalism, but they're holding it up as an example of this. And like, it just sort of, to me, undermined what had come before. But it was still interesting. But yeah, it's just too much information then undercut previous information yeah yeah There's a lot I, of I, words to say not much for me so. <laughs> well you've you've just finished reading this book it's probably catching so um <laughs> oh i feel Oof. this is this might be the first time i'm mean about one of the books that we're talking about because i i think i was a bit disappointed i enjoyed the first one a lot i, I mean i did feel like it it shares that problem a little bit in that the scientific ideas they're exploring are kind of all over the place in the first one because it ranges from cosmology to basic physics to a bit of, there's a little bit of chemistry, there's some biology, there's some evolution in it. It's a very general popular science book. And then this one has got a much tighter theme, but then still the examples they use go all over the show. And just to put it in, trying to explain, to do another example, 
as a kid, I always enjoyed, like, my favorite book that I read over and over again was 1,000 Fantastic Facts. And as I got older, I enjoyed things like Mysteries of the Unexplained, which is like a Reader's Digest book of all, like, spontaneous human combustion, all of that. And this kind of felt like one of those books with a narrative imposed on it. And I enjoyed the narrative as a narrative, but I felt that it really was just a collection of mostly interesting facts that didn't necessarily conform to the story. So it was kind of the two halves were to the detriment of each other in some Mm. ways. Not always. What do you think it was aiming, or the authors more accurately, not giving the book itself its own intent, what do you think they were trying to do that they hadn't done or they wanted to do more of from, from the first one? Well, I think they wanted to talk about people because as the blurb kind of alludes to, they look at the sort of history of the universe and of the planet Earth, but they kind of leave people out of it. And there's only a little bit really about life. So there's a lot about, you know, how the planets would have formed, how the universe might have started, how evolution might have worked. And then the wizards turn up at the end of the story and they've missed humans. Like they've left the planet Mm -hmm. on their space elevators, as they mentioned in this one. And so I think that now they're like, well, we've got this idea that storytelling is really what makes us different to animals. And we think that the science and the history and philosophy of science says that we're right about that. So we want to write a book about Mm. that. How do we know that animals don't have an oral storytelling tradition? I mean, it's a good question. (laughs) They say in this book that we literally can't really imagine what it's like to be a bat or a, a dog. Oh, the interesting point, they talked about the importance of babies babbling and language development and all of that. And I read an article recently about how they'd recently discovered that a certain breed of bat actually also babbles like human babies because that bat finds mates by doing the best song. And so the, the female's like, well, you're the best singer. I will I will make more bats with you. So they think that maybe the babbling is them sort of testing out the sound like in humans but to hone their skills to make new bats when they're oh, older. That's cool. So yeah. Do like different populations of bats have a different kind of language of song? It was one specific type of bat. It wasn't like all bats, so it was a very very specific kind. So yeah. Yeah. But yeah, well, I mean, because I, I was thinking more that even among the same species of songbird, different populations of that same species will have their own variations on songs that they'll pass down because the young will learn them and so the songbirds of that species in one place will sing quite a distinct song from the ones in another place and you can kind of tell where they're Mm. from based on the kind of song that they sing like a oral storytelling tradition kind of yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think you've sort of hit the nail on the head like it's the blurry space between what we define as instinct and what what we define as imagination and the key aspect of imagination being the capacity to see patterns and to project forwards and to take the lesson from patterns and then use that to alter behaviour in anticipation of future events that fit the pattern. And even in this book they sort of talk about the sort of instinct that's passed from animals from one animal to the next, the chimpanzee who was better at innately understanding the lion's tail, seeing that and being able to quickly go and recognise the pattern that that means death ensues, so getting to the tree. But mm. yes, yes that, uh, I don't know if there's a very clear delineation, biologically speaking. I mean, there probably is, but I don't know it between that, that line between what is instinct and what is imagination and pattern-seeking behaviour. 
and the mm. ability to project that forward. Or, I mean, the way they tend to explain it with animals is purely this animal was good at it and therefore they went on and bred and made more of them and if they weren't good at it, it didn't get passed on. So it's assumed that it's passed on through that instinct and we don't really get into the topic about whether instinct is learnt or whether it's an innate <laughs> process that you're born with, that, that blurry area of biology and biochemistry. Mm. Mm. I think they're trying to, and I think they do make an effort in this book to try and make the storytelling capability of humans a distinct thing that only we have. And as you say, it touches on those ideas of, of imagination. And as they get further into the book, I mean, there's a whole chapter which is titled and, and kind of about the extended present, which is the idea that, you know, one of the things that we can do that supposedly, not that we can know for sure animals don't do, is hear a bunch of sounds altogether or to see a bunch of things and kind of compile them into a extended idea of what a moment is or what a single thing is. I mean, clearly other animals do it as well. Like they have the same kind of arrangements of uh, sensory organs as we do, and they probably are interpreting it in at least a slightly similar way um, in terms of the mechanics of it. So, yeah, I, I think they are trying to argue that. How well they do it, I think, is debatable and again you know like in the first book there are times where i felt i don't know that this is the best science communication and and i say that as a fan of jack and ian like i really enjoyed their book about aliens i thought that was great and i've read some of ian's other stuff he wrote a sequel to flatland called uh, flatterland which was great and it goes into really a lot of detail about some very weird mathematical concepts not all of which i really understood but it it had the best description of quantum physics that helped me to understand it better than I had before. So I I know they're talented at this, but I don't know whether this style where they throw a lot of bits of information at you to try and support a broader idea that they're trying to sell us on is really there. And it also, even from the start, I think it takes a big risk in that, you know, as the blurb says, it's trying to be cutting edge. So a lot of the stuff they talk about is stuff that was new or very popular at the time when it was written in the early 2000s. And looking up some of that stuff now, as I did while reading it, some of it's just vanished. Like, some of it just doesn't get mentioned. If you look up the sort of broader topic that they're talking about, the thing that they specifically identify as being amazing and explaining it all was clearly a bit of a drop in the bucket and didn't make a big splash. Have you got an example? Yeah, so they talk about, I'm going to skip forward here, listeners, so bear with me, but one of the examples they talk about later on, sorry, there's so much. Listen, I, I want to tell you something. I make a document for every book that we read and I make notes where I write down specific page numbers and things that I might want to talk about. Normally, there's maybe a page or two of these notes. I think there's like four or five pages of these notes for me for this book and I did, and I stopped making them after. I think the last one's from page 263 because I just, I, I had too many. And so now I'm just scrolling through and trying to find this example because I can think of, but I want to make sure I get, I want to make sure I get the right phrase. Okay, here it is. And this is from chapter 20, Small Gods. We're talking about religions and they're also talking about altruism. And, you know, this has long been a problem in biology. How does altruism get selected for in evolution? Because if you're altruistic, you're doing things for others that often directly opposes your own ability to pass on your genetics because you are helping other people pass on their genetics by surviving and, and thriving. Mm. And oh, yeah. they quote this idea of overcommitment and... This was recently published. I think they quoted it from an article in 1999, so only a few years earlier. 
And first of all, when you Google it, you don't find anything about it. It's not like, here's the big solution to the puzzle. And when you look up articles about how do you explain altruism from a biological perspective, the term does not get used. And even the name of the guy who came up with it does not get used. And the guy who came up with it is a guy named Randolph Ness, who is an American doctor who is most famous for founding evolutionary medicine and evolutionary psychiatry, which I think it is important to mention are distinct from evolutionary psychology, which is a very troubling branch of psychology that (laughs) often tries to basically justify a lot of things that are frankly not okay about our current culture (laughs) uh, by saying this is an evolutionary advantage, you know, and, and we should have like very strict gender roles and we should have this and we should have that. And you're like, no, that's nonsense. So this is not that. But that's what he's famous for. And this idea of overcommitment, which is the idea that if you just commit to helping other people full on, then other people will never have a reason to not trust that you're going to do that and they will help you out in return because they know that you're trustworthy. It's I'm, I'm paraphrasing a lot. But that, that was like one idea. And then there were a couple of other things that came up in the book that I looked up that were just wrong. I've already spoiled one, so I don't want to spoil the other one. We'll get to it when we get to it. But... um. Once I found one or two of those things, and it was a bit different to in the first book where I was like, I know you've gone through and updated this because they did an updated version of the first book when this one came out. So they updated the science by about three or four years. And still, when you read it, you're like, okay, but that's still now very out of date. Whereas in this one, I just sort of felt, this doesn't seem like maybe it was 100% legit when you were writing about it. And some of the ideas you've written in here, I feel like maybe you haven't done your research on the non-science stuff as well as you could have. I hope that explains it. Yeah, it's an interesting space to be doing science communication off the back of a fictional universe. Obviously, I mean, it's not the only example of science communication using fictional universes in order to to delve into real science. But uh, I think there are obviously there would be quite a few challenges in doing that because there's obviously a degree of needing to buy into the the fictional universe and accept that world in order to, (laughs) to explain. And one of the challenges I had very early on was because narrativium was something they went really deeply into in that very first section of the science. I then carried with me this uncertainty about what was fiction and what was fact in their scientific explanations. And it took a while to be like, oh, no, okay, okay, that that was probably the major bit that they were creating and indulging in the fictional space. The rest is actually relatively, you know, uh, a reflection of known history and philosophy of science and, and scientific principles. So it can be a very interesting sort of gray space to be doing science communication and um, probably needs a fair bit of signposting perhaps of what is true science and what is uh, scientific indulgence in this particular quasi-fictional space, I guess. Because you could end up in a situation like I did in, what was it, year seven class, and they're asking, <laughs> science class, and they're asking us about um, what the speed of sound, or I can't remember what it was, but I was like, oh, it's this, because I got in it from the Monty Python universe song, and she's like, what? <laughs> I was like, you know, it's this. It's like... I used to know the number exactly off the top of my head, but she's like, not that. I'm like, but it said so in the song. And I I think my memory's just blanked out how the rest of that played out, but it wasn't great. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm upset because I know some of the figures in that song were quite accurate at the time it was written. 
But then Eric Idle rewrote it later on when he did the, um, he put it in one of the stage musicals that he did and he wrote a new version that was updated for the current science. So there was like a hundred thousand light years side to side with something, but yeah. She asked the question. I was like, I know this and no one else is going to know it. Yeah. I hope you sung it. Did you sing it when you answered? It's not my personality. I'm sorry. I mean, this is giving me shades of when I got, uh, I impressed my uh, year 12 English teacher because I knew the meaning of the word Wittishins. And that was only because I'd read a lot of Terry Pratchett books. <laughs> See, I think we've said this before. It's like the time I impressed my English teacher was, and I was like, well, you know, the Shawshank Redemption, he says, escape is just a shitty pipe dream. And then he escapes through a shitty pipe. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we haven't talked about that for about 30 episodes. That's <laughs> Every 30 episodes, I got to bring up my greatest English triumph. You'll remember, won't you, listener? If you've been with us for a while, you'll remember. But I'm glad. It's been a nice reminder. Look, we, we, there's still so much plot to get through. I know. I'm just avoiding it. We, well, let's, let's, talk more, let's talk more about the fictional plot before we get into the, the science. Uh, because- It's a good time. I did have a good time. Like, it's, a, it's not a deep or a long story, but it's fun. And Rincewind's so good in this. You know, mm. like when it's him and just the faculty, the faculty are this bunch of idiots, basically, like they usually are. Um, I mean, well, actually, they're all a bit smarter than normal, to be honest. They don't say as many stupid things, but he's the sort of only practical one. Because he's the only one who's been out in the world having adventures, whether he likes it or not. Yeah. And this is, you know, a much older, much wiser Rincewind who has had this peaceful time in the university sitting in his like office where all he does is catalogue rocks all day where he's able to sort of percolate and distill this wisdom that he's had from all these terrifying adventures. With a double Z. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it all comes out in this. I think I, I really loved him in this. Um, mm. I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a Rincewind fan anyway, but I think this really shows off the better side of him, for want of a, a better term. But he takes the note that he gets from the bottle to Ponder, who puts together a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> as per Reed Cully's instructions. And Ponder convinces the librarian to take all of them, including Rincewind and the luggage, into Roundworld via L-Space, because there are books now on Roundworld, so you can get there via L-Space, the warping of space-time created by any collection of books. The librarian only agrees because Rincewind comes up with a clever plan, and this is like a recurring theme through the book, is that he's quite shrewd, which I really liked. And they arrive in a study of someone who they think is a wizard, and then they almost get stabbed, but they escape. And they are now on what is unmistakably a version of Earth. Like, it, these are versions of historic characters from our own world. I mean, the fact that the wizards from Discworld can get there means I'm not taking it very seriously as being our world, I think. <laughs> the nonfiction chapter that follows this is kind of the first place where I was like, this is what you want to talk about to get your point across about humans being storytelling chimpanzees, which is, you know, how they describe us, which I, I think is a fine description. It's an argument I'm pretty sure I've heard another scientist make, although I can't remember who it was. And, you know, they talk about phase space. And I mean, they're, they're sort of riffing on where the idea of L-space comes from. They also talk about how biological systems and autonomous agents like people, you can't really have a, a pre-stated phase space. So you can't work out what the possible set of actions or things they're going to do is because they're too creative. <laughs> they're too complicated. <laughs> basically, uh, and the rules sort of affect themselves. And it, I kept thinking of um, one of my favourite plays that I was ever in was a Tom Stoppard play called Arcadia. 
And this is a big theme. The idea of complexity and chaos comes through in that because one of the characters is studying it. I played that character. So I bought, um, I've forgotten the guy's name, but I, fo- I bought the famous book about chaos theory and tried to read it. Um, it was useless because it was actually about complexity, not chaos. But it, still, I just kept thinking of that. I loved the uh, concept of the adjacent possible. The only way you could basically take what is a theory from the world of physics and thermodynamics and attempting to apply it to the biosphere, (laughs) you could (laughs) try to attempt to calculate the adjacent possibilities of the next step of evolution. And that's the closest you could get to actually using the phase space theory in, in the biosphere. That was, that stood out for me. That was fun. Yeah, that was great. I mean, we'll, I think we can probably get through the plot pretty quickly because we're not going to go too deep into the science of every chapter. But there'll be a few things I think that we pick out that we want to talk more about. While they're there, um, once they've escaped from this guy who tries to stab them and they've disguised the librarian as a quote-unquote <laughs> Spanish woman because the local English people, they never say that that's where they are, but they're clearly in London um, from the context of who they meet, that those people will believe Spanish people would look like anything because they don't know what they look like. Um, but they, they sit the librarian on top of the luggage and put him in a dress, and they're like, yes, now you're the right height for a human being. <laughs> and shape. Google the big dresses. This is a side note. But in this book, we've talked before about how we kind of felt like the luggage shouldn't have human legs, like it should have weird legs. But this book, and I don't know that I've seen it in other books, has an explicit description of them being like tiny human pink, pink legs. And I think, I think that might be in one of the other books, but I was, I was like, oh, damn, (laughs) the theory's been quashed. I was like, I hate that. I hate that a lot. It is kind of weird and gross. I don't like it. Where, where did it get them? Did it grow them? Would you so. grow flesh? But it, well, it's magical. I mean, this is the thing, right? Once you say something's magical, the rules all go out the door, which is one of the points of the book. <laughs> um, mm. I, I think. <laughs> Why isn't it wearing shoes? <laughs> it doesn't need. Sh- it's got tough fi- hobbit feet. That's why they're so small. <laughs> they're half the size of regular human feet. Anyway, they go. <laughs> they go out with him in disguise, and they meet up with the wizards who are hanging out with none other. Then John D. They don't talk much about John D. They have like a couple of paragraphs explaining who he is at the start of the next nonfiction chapter, but they really don't go into as much detail. And I thought that was a shame. Like, I was like, why are you introducing this guy who, you know, every other weird fiction story set in this period uses as a pivotal figure, sometimes as a villain and not. Yeah, I thought that was a bit weird. But anyway, they're hanging out with John D. and trying to figure out where are the elves? What are they doing here? And they also can't believe that the humans they're meeting in this period of uh, human history are the same species who in a thousand years are going to build a space elevator and bugger off the planet. Uh, but they are. <laughs> it's them. They're heads on pikes. It's, it's quite damning that, you know, London in this era is seen as being much worse than Ankh-Morpork. pork. And stinkier. <laughs> yeah. Pretty rough. Yeah. But, you know, got to get inspiration from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> The next non-fiction chapter does introduce a couple of important ideas that they come back to. I mean, one of them is the idea that there's these sort of three kinds of magic, which well, they don't really come back to that. But they talk about the effective stories on human development here and several other times in the book. And the sort of evolving idea of how to interpret those stories and what kind of stories are dominant in trying to explain the world around you. And this is also where they introduce the idea of the make a human kit 
this idea that that's what stories are for. Like you, you, you're born as a, an ape basically. And then you get told these stories that turn you into a human. That's like the humans that you're raised by. Um, and which, I mean, is, it's how culture works, right? That's what they're talking about. Uh, and we see the effects of that every day, both positive and negative. And they touch on that, like, you know, quite a few chapters. Cause they keep going on about intelligence and about culture. They go into the physical and the social elements of it. Like even like hearing and how how in some languages you can't pronounce certain letters because you don't hear it around you at a formative age. Because like in a lot of Asian languages, there is no V sound. So when you later in life learn English, you replace it with an R or an L quite often. Caravan in particular is like usually caravan or caravan. So I thought it was quite interesting to see that laid out for reasons. Because like, you'd think that you'd just be able to do all of them, but... Yeah, I don't know. I found that particularly interesting, I guess, because it ties into the nature versus nurture, which they never really called it that. Mm. But, yeah. Yeah, there was a book I was sure that they would reference, and now I realize I didn't look up to see if it had been written by the time they were writing this. But Stephen Pinker wrote a book called The Language Instinct, which is all about that idea. But that's like one really thick nonfiction book that's just about Basically, he's he's talking in a popular science way about his idea that language is an inbuilt instinct of human beings. And he talks about this process of, yeah, we can do all of the sounds, but when you're learning to speak as a baby, you're not learning to make those sounds. You're learning which ones you need to concentrate on for the language you're going to learn, which is what they talk about in, in this book. Yeah, they had that great section where they talked about it's like learning what connections to sever rather than what ones to make, which... I kind of was horrified by it. As in, like, you know that on some level where you're kind of like, oh, no, what are we doing to babies? <laughs> yeah. For for a monolingual idiot like myself uh, who always feels like, I, why didn't I learn another language? I mean, I've got to cut myself some slack. I didn't. I wasn't entirely in charge of that decision <laughs> as a small child. But it is so much harder. I've tried learning several different languages and... Uh, all of them as an adult, and it's just oh, it's the owl coming easy. for you. Yeah, the owl. The owl has come <laughs> for me several times. <laughs> Look, I've locked him out of the house for now, but he's he's going to find me. I'm going to be in have trouble. A hoot. <laughs> there, oh. there was some um, the sort of history and philosophy of science. I think I think this is chapter six. Probably my favourite bit of the sciencey explanation in in the whole book it presented the three kinds of magic which are mm. uh, the wonder of the universe the magic of saying a thing and then that thing becoming real for the ape that got what it wanted and then the third kind being technical magic which is the flicking of the light switch and the light appearing there's just some beautiful explanation that linked back into the disc world that followed this it sort of covered how Alchemy was a forerunner of chemistry, and while chemistry searched for the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone, oh my gosh, it's so complex, I'm still wrestling with this, that was the forerunner to the, the chemistry that enabled nuclear reactions, which is a kind of science that is deeply powerful and incredibly <laughs> dangerous. And they took that step back into a disc world to talk about the nature of magic in the disc world and uh, to basically explain that the saying of spells 
it was an explanation of how the wizards, it, it was very good for everyone, very much like nuclear power. It was very good for everyone to know you had the capacity <laughs> to use it. But if you were actually to use it both, it was, it was difficult, it was dangerous, and it would be bad for everybody involved. And that was such a quintessentially important idea for me that, I mean, it, it goes down to any magical universe, um, which there has to be limitations, there has to be boundaries, or everything is possible all of the time and you lose all of your your storytelling skills of conflict and constraints that you need for telling a story. So that was really a beautiful piece of philosophy that <laughs> it went through <laughs> quite a few concepts, like complicated concepts back to back and it ended up explaining a really key part of Discworld for me at the end of that and that, that was I felt like cheering in my head when I got through that section. Yeah, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was a really good summary too. Yeah, <laughs> they go through that. And I agree, like the, the three kinds of magic was great. And a lot of the ideas in that chapter are great. They come back to the fiction and Hex has worked out where the elves have gone. It's one of the things they also established. They sort of talk about the relationship in this book a lot more than in the previous one of how Roundworld relates to the Discworld. Because it's also, I think it's worth remembering that in the first one, they never actually physically go into Roundworld. They put on these sort of like magic suits and project themselves into Roundworld um, so that they're never actually there and they don't. And, and Rinswin spends all this time like going through millions of years of Earth history, trying to figure out what's going on and getting squashed by things. And um, <laughs> he's... He's, but he's okay because he's not really there and he's sort of wearing the sort of equivalent of a virtual reality suit. It was like, like ABBA. I'm just bringing in like current events. <laughs> that's, that <laughs> so is dated very, specific. should probably cut that, that out. <laughs> no, that's fine. Leave it in. That's what the, that's what the episode notes are for. <laughs> yeah. They, this one, they physically are in there. So, uh, but because they come from the real universe, as they call it, time in the round world universe is subordinate to their time. So they can go in and out of it and travel between all times. As long as Hex, who is outside of the uh, round world universe can manipulate them through it. Hex, the computer who works at, uh, works at, who is at Unseen University, works out that the elves have done something millions of years in the past of round world. And that's the influence that they've had. And the wizards are like, really? How does that even work? And they have, they almost have the sort of whole evolution argument again, which there's a few things in this book where I'm like, I feel like this is well trodden ground. There's at least two or three other books where Ponder and Ridcully have an argument about evolution. And the next Science of Discworld book is all about evolution. So I'm like, well, that's suddenly going to happen again, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but they decide, yeah, they're going to go back millions of years ago to try and find out what's going on. Um, they attack them because they can't use magic in round world. This is also a key thing because they, they can't use any of their own magical powers. There's no magic in the round world universe. Let's do a whole bunch of ironing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They tie like horseshoes and stuff onto their stars and just smash them with it, which works, but they change history and wipe out humanity or at least the version of it we're familiar with. And there is no London, which I look, it's been so long since I've read this. I have read this one before and I was like, what? I don't remember this. And it was it was very weird, but I kind of enjoyed it. I kind of, it was an interesting <laughs> look because they come back to like the exact same time, but there's just like a few people nearby who aren't very suspicious of them, who are quite like what does the Winston call them, like edge dwellers or edge people. edge people, yeah, yeah, people, yeah. And um, they notice that they're just very 
chill. They have no motivation to move forward in any way. They they don't know how to make fire. They just wait for like lightning to strike something, then they keep that fire going. They've all got the same name. They don't make art. All of the mounds they have are just muscle shells from like previous meals that they've had. They don't really bury their dead. They just sort of like put them together. I mean, the implication being that this is how it's been for a long time. Like humans just have no drive to do anything different. They're just chugging along, having a nice time, and it's very boring. They're described as very boring people. And that makes them want be like, oh, we've we've messed up the timeline. We've got to back to future this thing. Like Biff cannot be running this casino. <laughs> we've got to go back <laughs> yeah. and fix this. And I was totally on board with that when I was reading this book. But like, is like, because their whole thing is like, oh, well, they're not going to be able to build a space elevator and escape when the thing hits the earth in a thousand years. So we've got to fix this. But if they don't go back and fix it and create the society, like the people being lost are already lost. So they're like, is it necessary to go back and create a society that then needs to escape? Because like, and this is going to sound real horrible. This society is not really worth <laughs> worth saving. Like they they probably don't mind if they just sort of like aren't here. They probably don't think forward into things. So if they all disappear in like a dinosaur level extinction event, they're probably not going to really mind. So the people that they're saving aren't in this world at all. So is there really like an ethical drive to go back and create the society that then needs to escape this event? That's a good question, and it sort of does get down to that question of what's the responsibility and what's the driver for the wizards to to save humanity because from what I understand from the first one up until this there they seem to have only started to develop a curiosity and a and a care and potentially a compassion when they see that elves have been there and it, I don't think we quite mentioned this earlier but the thing that seems to drive them more than anything is that humans have a belief in magic and there's no magic in round world and that's direct result of the elves so they want to fix it so it's almost um i hear what you're saying they're driven seems far more by the elves being their enemy than the humans being a species that they particularly care about and it definitely wasn't articulated the idea that they wanted or why or what they needed to save them yeah you could look at it as they could see it as though they've killed everyone they met, like they killed D or whatnot, by going back and making this society that just never evolved into them. So like, there's that point of view. But like, if if that society never existed in this timeline, then is it worth recreating it? Like, I think so because we're part of it. Like, go back and make us. That's great. Yeah, but. Well, I think I think also the wizards do see like humans, particularly the the sort of line of of humanity that they meet as being like them. I mean, they still sort of see us as kind of weird because we live in this universe with no magic, no narrativium, and we believe all this stuff that isn't true for us, which makes us kind of idiots as far as they're concerned. But they still see us as like distant cousins or something. Like That's the kind of impression I got. And then when they undo the elves' influence and it deletes those people, they're like, that's not okay. Um, (laughs) But then when they put them back and it's still not on track, they're like, well, we got to do, and, and they. So yeah, I, I agree. Like their motivation is maybe not articulated super well, but you know they're the wizards of Unseen University. I think more than anything else, they see Round World as belonging to them, and so the elves yeah. coming in there is like you're messing with our stuff, and that is not okay. Although it's not really explained how 
if the elves have only just turned up and it is kind of presented as though Ridcully is noticing their influence now and that's why he's gone into Roundworld. But it's not really clear how then in the first book humans arose and made a space elevator and left if the elves weren't there influencing them yet, which in this book it's kind of revealed is integral <laughs> to their development. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit – look, it's – it's. I, I think more so than your usual Discworld book where the fiction here is pretty loose, uh, I don't know that it bears too much deep examination, <laughs> um, much as some of the science doesn't. <laughs> In in the Pratchett that I've been acquainted with to date, time travel hadn't been part of it, and I was I was wondering if this is the time travel one, if or is if time travel is uh, sort of something you've seen in other Discworld books. We're getting to those, I think. Yeah, we've only really read one of them. There's sort of three books where it's a major part of the plot. The first one being Mort. Okay, technically there's no time travel in Mort, but by knowing what's supposed to happen in the future and making something different happen, he has forced history down another leg of the trousers of time, even though Pratchett hadn't invented that term yet, so we think it definitely counts. And yes, we didn't mention soul music in which there's some actual time travel. But then also Thief of Time, which we're reading very soon and which came out around the same time as this book. I'm going to keep quoting from yeah, they do keep quoting from it. It's it's the most recent Discworld book, I think, when this came out. And then the big one is Nightwatch, where the main plot is all about the time travel. So, yes. But this is there's more of it in this than probably in, mo- in most. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's more of it this in No, I can't I can't do it. Uh, yeah, so so there's more to come, but there has been some already. And the the way the wizards approach it, I feel like, makes a lot of sense. Like, towards the end of the book, and we'll get there, they they do a lot of this time travel, and they just sort of, like, yeah, sure. Like, they don't, they don't seem particularly worried about it. Yeah. It's interesting, because they had also had, cha- they had a chapter in, like, nonfiction about time travel, and they also had a section in a chapter about time travel, and they also had the whole thing about free will, in what kind of felt like a random section of it, though. Um, mm. Sorry to jump to a sci-fi. I was worried I'd give you trauma flashbacks to <laughs> talk about. Oh, no. how we don't have we don't have free will because everything's already happened before. So you're just going around and around and around, just doing the same thing over and over again. Because time is a flat circle. <laughs> yes. Now you've made me say it on the yeah. podcast, which is yeah, everyone drink. <laughs> <laughs> You're uh-huh. right, they don't make that connection when they do the analysis of free will back to the fact that <laughs> in this book, time travel is by definition, yeah, completely destroying it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have uh, the version of time travel that we see here, and I get hung up on this all the time because so many fiction versions of time travel do not make sense. But the version that they have here is that, I mean, if you've seen the recent uh, Disney Plus series Loki, they have a they have a thing they call the sacred timeline. So there's only one version of history but in that version, there can be deviations from it, but there's an external force that goes back and makes sure that those deviations are cut off and undone so that time stays stable and there's just one version of history. In this book, it's more that, well, there's one version of history, but we can change it to another version. There's only one version at a time, but we can go back and fiddle with things and then it'll be a different version that's in the round world universe in the bottle. Um, so we can kind of, it's like, it's kind of like you can go back and change the settings and then it's different. Yeah. We do kind of a couple of times touch on sort of multiverse theory that there are multiple, was it the trouser leg of time? Oh yeah. Yeah. So those <laughs> that happened in a different trouser leg. 
those versions exist in L space at least, or at least the books written in yeah. them do. Yeah. So that that's an interesting point though. So it's either that only one of them exists or only one of them exists in the bottle universe that they have access to. And they're sort of like switching which one it is, but those other ones still exist yeah. somewhere so they can, you know, go through L space and find books from those places. But then L space is meant to represent all the books that could ever be written, even potentially anywhere in any version of any universe. So it's a lot of books. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's all of them, uh, and there's never enough shelf space, as they say, is one of the immutable laws of the universe. That was a lot of fun. I like that a lot. They have changed history, and we we get a you know a nonfiction chapter about the possible paths of evolution, how humans evolved from apes, which includes some information about the whole aquatic ape theory of humans, um, and the <laughs> beach ape idea, which is that it wasn't so much that we could swim that was important. It was that we spent a lot of time on the beach and we ate a lot of seafood, which has a lot of fatty acids in it, which helps your brain grow bigger. Is um, that why that brand was so big at the time, that bathing ape brand? <laughs> you know, that might have had something to do with it. Although the the aquatic ape theory was big in the 70s, if I remember rightly. Like mm. that's that's going back quite a long way. Is that still around? Has that been disproven? I'd not actually heard that theory before. Yeah. It was awesome. I loved I, it. Um, I wanted it well, to be real. Which one, the the seafood one or the or the swimming apes one? Both. Aquatic ape, the concept that so much of our physical development, like uh, the being upright uh, and the diet and the changes in the brain, was all linked. So, I mean, it doesn't sound like uh, when you're throwing that many different parts of evolutionary development at a single theory, it does seem to suggest maybe it's a little too convenient. But I was just curious if. If you knew whether that was one of the areas of science that this book touches on that's sort of been left in the annals of history. Look, I'm I'm pretty sure that it's it's not really taken seriously as like, yeah, this explains human beings. And I seem to remember, I thought I'd written this up for the notes for the previous one, but maybe it was something that ended up on the cutting room floor because they do mention it in the first book as well. But it's not a major theory anymore. It's sort of like an interesting idea and maybe there's something to it, but it doesn't. it's not where all humans came from or why we're all like this. The beach one, I'm not so sure about. I think the thing was that in this chapter, when they're talking about those things, they do go out of their way to kind of say, these things are controversial and they sound good, but that doesn't mean they're true. And they talk several times about the fact that we're constructing stories to explain things, but that's not how it works. Like there's not... You know, like even with this one, I think they say you can say that we were eating shellfish and that made our brains grow, but that's not why they grow bigger. Mm -hmm. They they grew they might have that might have contributed to it, but that's a story we're constructing after the fact. That wasn't what they were trying. They weren't like proto humans on the beach going must eat more prawns (laughs) so that my brain grows bigger. Like it doesn't work that way. They weren't sticking to the paleo diet specifically (laughs) for gains. <laughs> no, uh, they were sticking to the paleo diet because it's all that was available. Uh, <laughs> they were sick of the primordial soup diet and they were moving <laughs> up in the world. Oh man, just nothing but slime. <laughs> slime. I mean, that's like the future diet, right? That's like when people are eating uh, soylent green or other like meal replacement things. Soylent green is <laughs> not slime. <laughs> It is famously something else. No, I mean, like, there's a real... You're not aware that there's a no, real no, world toilet green. But they but, shouldn't have called it that. Well, they... Yeah. I mean, it is, they turn people into slime. Oh, no. Uh, anyway, uh, so... Time is a flat circle. We will eventually come back to the primordial... Slime is a flat circle? 
<laughs> I can be. Uh, yeah, if you, if you pour it very carefully into a mold. Um, oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll get back into the fiction. Yeah. Because once they've had this experience, you know, they meet these um, the alternate human beings who are not... Well, they're not human beings in the sense they're they're more presented as this is what Neanderthals might have become if they hadn't been killed off. Yeah, but they think Neanderthals are actually quite smart. And there was an article I think recently about how they think they they made art. So that kind of like just just throws this whole book in the bin. Well, look, there's many <laughs> things like that <laughs> in this book. No, but literally that would actually undercut the whole book. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because how often do you go back and read a popular science book from 20 years ago? You just don't do it. Like, you read what the current one is because it has the current science. It's about contemporary issues. And the only ones that last that sort of stand the test of time are kind of the ones about big physics stuff. And they're often not about cutting edge things. I think it's an interesting sort of act of bravery and ego to write one. Because you know that, like, it's, it's, they talk about this in the book as well, about, like, when they do, do their science chapter about how it's disproving and allowing your ideas to be attacked, and that's how you move along theories. But to write, like, a popular science book, knowing that it will go out of date, possibly even before it goes to print, that's quite, that's brave, like, yeah. as well. You have to have a certain personality to be able to be like, I put a lot of time, effort, and heart into this, and in a couple of years it might be nothing. But also, it's not because it can help move along a conversation. It's the whole like the steps thing. But I hadn't really thought about how it would feel to write and put a popular science because the like, articles you know are fleeting. Like generally, you know that people will move on from that. But a book that's something that sits on a shelf forever usually. So to know that the content will go out of date quite soon, possibly in your lifetime, likely in your lifetime, that's an interesting state of mind to be in when writing something like this. Mm. And particularly when they keep referring to new things or this is cutting edge or this is something we just found out that agrees with our idea, which does seem to fly a bit in the face of exactly the message they're trying to send about how science works and the kind of stories you should construct in order to move forward. But I think their broader idea of storytelling is really what makes us people is still a good one. And I think there are still people sort of championing that as a way to distinguish humans or that's because people, a lot of people have written about what is it that makes us different? Like, how come we have, you know, skyscrapers and helicopters and spaceships and medicine and uh, all the stuff that animals don't have? Because they're cool and animals are dorks. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> we had to change the definition of what a human was because it used to be the uh, only animal that used tools. And then, mm. obviously, watching the chimp use the uh, the stick to get the ants out of <laughs> the I mean, octopuses oh, use no. tools. Octopuses are terrifying. They're just biding their time. Like, they're, they're definitely the- smarter than <laughs> us. They're not terrifying. They're the best. I couldn't um, get out of a jar if it was closed on me. No, that's true. But you would, you'd probably be dying quite quickly. Yeah, so would an octopus. But they're like, no, I'm just going to climb out of this and I'm going to just like walk across this boat and into the sea. And like, it's just a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, they don't live very long. This is the main reason why they haven't conquered the world. They have very short lifespans. They can't really pass on information because they, they live underwater, where it's very hard to write things down or speak. <laughs> yeah, but there's a whole thing about fish that have like a, was it four-generation cycle of going back to where like four generations ago 
they originated from. So there's some sort of memory and knowledge being passed down, whether it's again, like Alanda was talking about, like instinct versus like, it's just, there's something going on that we don't know about. And that's like, I don't know what four generations ago my family were doing or whether we were, or like, and I have no drive to go back there and like be in that patch of warm water, like those fish, but you know, do 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 we know? Am I making a point, or am I just saying stuff? <laughs> That's the question we've been asking about this book, really. Yeah. I think, but it's <laughs> no, actually um, oh, that is yeah. a really good point. No, isn't like I think that's very fair because, as you said, Ben, they make a good point about stories making us human, like that. But does this book argue that? Like, I feel like they make that point, and then all of the other stuff doesn't really add up to an argument building a case. It's like stuff that's kind of interesting and tangentially related, but it doesn't feel like an argument for this thesis. I feel like some of it is. Yeah, but not most of it. Uh, Yeah, maybe not most of it, but I feel like there's enough in there that I think they do make a convincing argument for, you know, storytelling as being really important as Mm. to the development of humans and where we are now. But I also think, yeah, there's an awful lot of stuff in here that's not really about that or is, as you say, tangentially linked and which doesn't necessarily help push that main argument. And in the first one where it really was, it did feel like they were just going to discuss any old thing that they felt was interesting to do with where does the earth come from? And that was really the only theme of it was that we're going to create our universe and the wizards are going to make it and they're going to look at it and go, what the hell is this thing? And them working it out is going to give us a set of questions that we will answer based on our scientific understanding. And that was cool. And that framework worked. And it wasn't like, we're going to push a barrow here. This is our big idea. And then this one comes along and it's like, this is what we think. This is our idea. We're going to try and convince you. But not all the time. Like some of the time, we're still going to just explain some other stuff. Oh, you know? do you want to hear about this cool guy from the 50s who had this scam where he like would get pregnant women to give him a shilling? Like, that was loved amazing. that section. And I was like, why is this in here? I love it. I'm going to be saying this to everyone, but I don't know why it's in this book. And that's, I don't think yeah. that's what they want people to go away from the book mm. talking about, but it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the structure of the book, the concept of having the fictional chapter followed by the scientific chapter and the name of the book being the science of Discworld very much lends itself to the concept that it's always just going to build on whatever happened in the last chapter in the fictional world and whatever science they are, you know, is relevant and necessary to bring up at that point to do that understanding that if they don't have some tie through, that's going to both defeat their own argument that we need stories. (laughs) So there's almost a meta goal here by trying to have the storytelling nature, tell a story. Um, Yeah. So I think there's probably two purposes here. It's the, you know, the riffing off the, the fictional world and trying to, yeah, this, this, larger thesis so i'm i'm more forgiving i think you know i I think it still fits to have a hey this is cool throwing it at you though it it was it is a pretty full-on experience all in Mm. one go i think maybe i'm angry because all the physics was up front and i was like hey i'm i don't like feeling like this (laughs) (laughs) i'm so sorry i'm so sorry Uh, some people might love that and that might be their jam and they'll be like i'm so glad it started like this so you know you can't cater to everyone Let's get back to the fiction because that's that's sort of our our way through this. I feel they do come back to the current time, which is they. I think there's a great passage where they sort of they don't know what to call anything because it's not their history, so they just refer to it as time D, 
because it's where D lives. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know that that means what you think it means, but we'll run with it. Anyway, it's D time and that's where they go back to, but there's no London. There's just a swamp. But just before they go back there, and I love this little detail, Rincewind appears to himself, having come back in time and gone, hey, hold your breath when you go back to the future. And so he's the only one holding his breath when they all fall in the swamp. And that becomes the way that they know that this past time travel thing is going to work. Because while they're arguing about whether it's going to work, Rincewind's just like, I'm going to go see if I can save myself some discomfort (laughs) while you're arguing about whether or not we can do this, which I thought was great. Uh, and then that's when they meet all these edge people who are the alternative version of humanity that doesn't have very much creativity and just sort of sits where they're happy and safe and hasn't really built or changed anything. That's so wrong. No, it's not <laughs> wrong. Because the only reason that they don't let them be, in theory, is that they know that in a thousand years they have to escape the Earth. Surely. Well, I think also they've become quite attached to D and his mates by this stage because they see them as sort of quite close to being wizards. Yeah, so they wipe out this other group of people. Well, they also created that other group of people and yeah, wiped out the like, first group. So they kind but of. It's just you gotta. They're wiping out a group of people either way. This is an ethical maelstrom. <laughs> <laughs> as is all time trip. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But they, you know, they can't really get through to these people and talk to them more because they don't really have language as such or culture (laughs) they just kind of live there which seems a bit mean Uh, but that sort of leads them into what are the origins of human creativity and talking more about human evolution and they have this whole idea about the repeated thing in evolution where you see uh, a lineage of animals split into gracile and robust forms is the phrase that they use but they basically mean like smaller lighter ones and big tough ones where they talk about the fact that there's actually three kinds of elephants, not just two. And uh, I thought that was really cool. I didn't know about that. The jungle elephants, mm-hmm. that was cool. I did look that up. I think that is true. I th- like Because the problem was, like I said this before, once there was one thing that I read and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not true. It made me go, mm. what else is not true in this book? I don't yeah. feel now I can trust everything that you say. Wait, so one in seven people aren't illegitimately born? That, that was a cool fact. Is that true? <laughs> I well, look. I tried to find that out, and I couldn't find the study that they were referencing. Um, so I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. Seeing like pretty small sample as well. Like they're like, oh yeah, this one like plays, and this other like. There's two examples, but anyway. Yeah, they also do take some time to point out popular ideas in science that are not true. Like they talk about mitochondrial Eve, the idea of that you can trace mm-hmm. the mitochondria in all human beings back to one person. They say, well, that's not literally true. Like, there wasn't, like, one person from whom all of our mitochondria comes. And there wasn't, certainly wasn't just one woman who had the mitochondria back then. Like, there were, they had some numbers in there really interesting. Like, 70,000 years ago, there were at least 100,000 humans who radiated out of Africa. Um, mm. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> like, I've never heard that before. I knew, mm. Like, I know the basic story, but I'd given up on Richard Dawkins by the time he wrote the one about people leaving Africa, so I never read that one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that was good. I enjoyed that. And they did a great explanation about the radiation as well. You know, it's not people packing a bag and traversing across the continent. It's it's a very, very slow process of one family, kids moving and just being on the other side of the river and their kids being another, you know, 
200 meters down the road and that's actually the slow process of migration <laughs> over a really long time yeah. that was that was really well explained yeah but yeah look while they're inside round world they can only talk to hex through things that are communication devices or which the local population believe are communication devices so when john d is around they talk through john d's crystal ball there is no crystal ball here obviously the so the closest thing they can find is the tree where the uh, edge people get their fire from because they don't know how to make their own fire. That tree is the only thing that has any kind of significance to them. So that's where they can talk to Hex. And so they get him to go, all right, we've got to undo this. They also take a little while to really believe that the elves made humans. And this is, I mean, this is a thing in the book where I'm like, oh, this seems a bit rough. It's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you didn't, you didn't do this by yourself. <laughs> uh, it was aliens what done it, uh, which is always a bit rough. Yeah, but it was, I think, rougher than that was, like, sorry, you wouldn't be human if there wasn't nastiness and competitiveness. <laughs> like, that's well. essential to developing as humans. <laughs> like, oh, if we weren't competitive with each other, then we'd just all be sitting around on mounds of muscle shells without language. I mean, look, that's I'd love saying. for human history to, to contradict that idea, <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't know that it does, unfortunately. What makes us human is yeah. keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, there's a bit of that. There definitely was a almost theme of uh, what drives humans are fear and the elves bring fear because fear is what drives, yeah, invention, creation and development of tribes and society. And they, I feel like they edged towards that and didn't quite say that. Mm. Just put it there just so that you could see it and get there yourself. Mm. Yeah. Well, it, there's also the thing, and this is coming back to an idea that you have we talked about before, but in the, the Edge People non-fiction chapter in between the bits where they meet them and sort of then realise that they've got to go back and more or less wipe them out to make humans again, they talk about that distinction between tribal and, and barbarous thought, but they also kind of synthesise it. And one of the things they do early on with those ideas is that they talk about the fact that those things are not necessarily isolated. Like in feudal society, the nobility kind of have this, what they would describe as a barbarous way of thinking in terms of the knowledge they feel that they need and having all these ideas about honor and that they just do things and things will be work out for them because they should. Whereas your peasantry has a more tribal idea. Again, this is in the author's language where you know, they, they're trying to learn a list of things that you need to do and that you should not do in order to survive and passing that information on so that they can all work together and they all have a communal idea of who they are and what they should be doing and that those mm -hmm. things clash with each other. But also this idea of civilization is a combination of those two things. But this is also where they talk about unnatural selection has played a part in human evolution. And they specifically talk about puberty rituals uh, mm. where, you know, they sort of are brutal to particularly young men. And I think, you know, that I found that quite interesting because I was like, well, we still do that now. It's just that it's a much more sophisticated, entrenched thing where no one has to specifically do it to you. It's communicated through media and through culture. Mm. Um, and it still has a similar effect in some ways. And then there's that Bible story yeah. that I haven't heard in years. Which one was that? The the one where they um, convince everyone to get circumcised and then kill them all. Oh yeah. Mm. Oh that. Was... And that people found that yeah. story less funny over time, so we don't use that as the uh, the hilarious go-to parable <laughs> around the 
the table yeah. at the pub. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the Bible's full of some intense stuff. But yeah, I remember yeah. reading that. Like, because I've seen I said this before. Like, whenever I didn't have a book during reading time, I would just read the Bible that was in my desk. So I read a lot of really specific Bible stories. <laughs> yeah, some of them are, um, yeah. So the concept of the puberty rituals was that it was selective breeding in the sense that you had to go through the ritual, the barbaric ritual, which was a demonstration of obedience and deference to authority. You were then included in that society, you know, got married and had children. So that was your sort of method of um, continuing genetics. Whereas if you're like, nah, not, not around for this, I'm off to the hills, you d- didn't then breed. And, yeah, interesting. Was that and also the thing about understanding storytelling was the other point they made because you could look to the old men who were making you do this and sort of think okay if I do this I can have a future like theirs you're looking Mm. forward you're not just living in the moment you can see the narrative so it's also for selecting for storytelling Mm. which I thought was a little bit of a long bow but it also made sense to me yeah there's a a lot of stuff in this book like that where you're like "Mm, okay yep Sure. I I mean, and and again, like, I feel like some of the idea, you could probably take like six or seven of the nonfiction chapters of this book and expand them into just a one book on its own that sort of took you a bit more by the hand and, yeah, and gave you a bit more of a through line that wasn't interrupted all the time by this really delightful fiction that you wanted always to be coming back to. So, yeah, I, yeah. And that's the challenge whenever you're trying to do what this book does, which is deeply ambitious and cover just so many areas of science. You don't get that opportunity to go, well, this is one theory. Another group of people believe something completely different. Well, this is where we're coming from. And uh, this is, yeah, so you don't get that multiplicity that you would get if if, if each of this was an entire thesis. Yeah, as you say, yeah. it's almost the storyline demands a level of singular narrative to, to go through it, which is in its own way a little bit unscientific. Yeah. I mean, they do take pains at some points in the book to sort of say that, to say, like, look, we're not ever saying there's only one answer. But also a lot of the rest of the time, they just talk as if this is the one answer. So uh, it does. It felt a little bit sometimes like they were having their cake and eating it, too. When do they talk about the fairy tales? Sorry, I, I need to get to the really gross fairy tales. OK, well, we're getting there. We're nearly there. Uh, <laughs> we're- well, it's horrible, but we, we must discuss it because it was the worst thing ever. But also, again, it's like. Not the point of the book, but it's one of those things, like those thousand fantastic facts where you're going to pull it out and be like, hey, so, you know, Cinderella's glass slipper is actually... Um. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll get to that as well. Uh, but yeah, well, this is actually, this is this bit, right, where they're talking about where does human creativity come from? This is the chapter Blind Man with Lantern, which is just after they've met the edge people. And yeah, they talk about fairy tales and where they come from. And this is, uh, I'm just looking it up, Liz, because I know the specific bit that you want to talk about. Want is not a strong word. It's like must. There's like a need to spread the misery around, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah. you'll you'll never see the Cinderella narrative the same ever again after hearing (laughs) the origins. I thought I knew a lot of the messed up origins of fairy tales. It's like a thing that I have just sort of like slowly collected over my life but i never heard either of these ones like you know the one like sleeping beauty where like she gets pregnant while she's sleeping and then the prince is actually already married and then the wife is jealous and so says to cook the babies into a pie but the chef doesn't do it and there's a you know it's all just very messed up but yeah (laughs) look it's certainly true that there are older versions of some fairy tales that are a lot more brutal and explicit 
barbaric. <laughs> yeah, barbaric. But they're talking about how we program children not through rational instructions, but through storytelling and fairy tales and the things that that teaches them. And they talk about Alona and Peter Opie who collected stories, like they went out and watched children playing and sort of documented what the culture of children was like. And they make a great point in this where they talk about the fact that, uh, in fact, the line, I, I noted this line, you know, there's a children's subculture that propagates itself without adult intervention, censorship, or indeed knowledge. And I work with children a lot, and I see that, absolutely, it's true. Like, and you see these trends go through the culture of children that are propagated amongst them by themselves. It's become, I think, maybe a bit more homogenous now that they all are watching the same YouTube videos. <laughs> and not the same ones, but, you know, they have access to a common medium that uh, kids mm. in earlier generations didn't. But they're still making that content for themselves in a certain way as well. Like they're deciding what to watch. And they're also making some of it too. Like there are kids making their own YouTube videos. Plenty of that. But then they talk about, yes, nursery stories. And they specifically mention Cinderella <laughs> and Rumpelstiltskin. And they claim, and Liz, I know that this is where you are worried about the thing that they're saying, but they claim that in late medieval times, Cinderella's slipper had been a fur one, not glass, and they use the fact that it was a mistranslation of an old French word. I looked this up. That's not true. Good. It's a glass slipper. And if you think about it, the first slipper doesn't really make sense. Because where does it, how does she... Well, because I hadn't thought that deeply into it. Ooh. The analogy that they're making <laughs> is that the first slipper is not a shoe, folks. Uh, you can read the book. Uh, this is on page 115 of uh, the original <laughs> hardcover edition if you want to get into it. I feel like it's slightly too filthy, even for us with our explicit tag. But they're saying it's not a shoe that people were trying on. Let's <laughs> we'll, we'll go that far. However, the point is that it's made of glass because it has to be a shoe that will not yield so people cannot force their foot into it. And it fits them. Like, it has to be molded exactly to the shape of a foot. And so there are older versions where the story is gold slippers or other things, but not, you know, the, the one that they're referring to where it's supposedly mistranslated is not a mistranslation. And it's one of the Good. earlier ones that's recorded. So that doesn't seem to be likely to be true, certainly not in the references that I could find. And then they also talk about Rumpelstiltskin being a sexual parable, including by deconstructing his name. And this is al this is also not true, Liz, mm. because Rumpelstiltskin, I looked it up, it comes from a German word that's not quite the same, but similar, which basically means a kind of goblin. So this is my question now. How did they get there? Like, is this from their own recent interpretations? Was it their child? Like, how did they come up with these two really weirdly sexual things, unless they were because of their whole, like, William Shakespeare thing, trying to put in some dick jokes? I mean, I assume they have got it from research somewhere, but look at the episode notes for this one, because I will do a bit more of a search than the one that I did while reading it. But I feel like when it's non-scientific stuff, they maybe haven't gone deep enough. Now, I tried to find a copy of the Opie's book. It wasn't like a folktale index, of which there mm. are many. It was more a collection of specific stories with a history about them. And I think they had like 10 or 20, something like that, in this famous book that they wrote. And they do go into the origins of them. I couldn't find an electronic copy of the book. But the context that I read about the book seems unlikely that these kinds of origin stories are what the Opies were talking about in their book. So I think this has come from somewhere else. I think this is a secondary source that they haven't specifically mentioned. 
And I think this is one of the problems of the book is they make a lot of claims in here and they've got a very in-depth index, but they do not have sources. Like every now and then they name a, a study or a, a scientist or an author um, in particular, but they don't cite anything. So I don't know where they got these ideas from. Because it's weird, like, because usually the, the messed up fairy tales are not sexual. They're just really dark. There's just lots mm. of death and horrible motives. So it was surprising and it's actually really kind of pleasant to know that it's probably just crap. Well, I mean, look. I want it to be crap. <laughs> I have heard stories about the origins of old school versions of fairy tales also being quite sexually explicit as well. No. So so there I think there is some truth in that, but that doesn't mean that all of the stories are like that and it so it doesn't mean these particular interpretations are like that. So I don't know. This was the big one for me where I read it and then I couldn't find any support for it. I'll look into it deeper. It'll be in the episode notes. So if you want to know more, listener, you can find out. <laughs> uh, you can do your own research as well. If you do, if anybody knows this stuff, by the mm. way, if you're listening and you're like, Ben, you're wrong. <laughs> Um, please tell us. We we love to be told that we're wrong. Or if you've got a really horrifying alter- like original version of a sanitized story, I preferably dark, not sexual. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Murders, not not <laughs> I assume by the, the very nature of oral histories there would be so many different versions breaking off and creating their own narratives. I mean that's the very nature of yeah, the story being passed on yeah. and on and on. So I guess it's possible, but again, yeah. That work's been done, though. Like like I say, there's huge indexes of folklore that codify these stories and sort of go, okay, so here's this is a story archetype and here's recorded versions of this story. So those things exist. And I think the one thing that makes me think that maybe I do need to do more research is that, you know, Terry Pratchett would go on to collaborate on another book like this called The Folklore of Discworld. And I think he demonstrates such a keen understanding of the history of storytelling and folklore that it would seem to me really weird that that is totally wrong and he let it go in the book. Like, because we know that they worked on these books together. Mm. Like, they'd, they'd write their own bits, but then they'd talk to each other about it and they'd look at each other's work and they'd all... So, it was all... They were all working on it together. It wasn't like he went off and wrote the fiction chapters on his own and they went off and wrote the other chapters by themselves. I'm just going to have to dig into it more. Shall we get on to the time-travelling art detectives? Well, not detectives. <laughs> what is it like? It's like, like what would yes. you call it? It's like a just a scampy art escapade. I know. <laughs> it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Because they go back and they stop themselves from stopping the elves, and that puts back Dee and the humans, but they are still not developed enough artistically and imaginatively to get to the point of building a space elevator and leaving the planet. In fact, their whole civilization crashes and burns, I think they say, a, a few hundred years after the point that they're currently in. And they figure out that they've got to make them more creative, even though that does seem like that's what the elves would want. Like They don't come up with this idea by themselves, by the way. Ridcully's like, well, we don't know what to do, but it's elves. Can I send a message to Lanka? And he sends a message to Granny Weatherwax who sends a single word back, Theostri, which is a coded message to save on money, and they realise they've got to change the story. In order to change the story, they've got to make humans more creative. So they go back in time and start seeding the ideas of art. They, I mean, And they start, like, you know, with 
people living in caves and getting them to draw pictures uh, and then making the rest of them think that that has a magical ability to create the future by, you know, manipulating things with the help of Hex. And they do all this other stuff. I think my favourite one of these is when Rincewind is trying to teach the like ancient Greek style folks to be actors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was great. But they, because they're trying to find this middle way, like they kind of talk about how if the elves aren't there, these monkeys just sort of become these unimaginative edge people. If the elves are there, then they believe a load of nonsense that's not true and never really get properly imaginative and creative. So it's, yeah, it's this interesting sort of trying to thread the needle in between. Oh, we actually, we're skipping over a whole bit, but because even before they do that, they go looking for what it might be and they learn what science is or they think they do and they go looking for it. And they have this amazing sort of tour through who are the famous scientists and they find Archimedes and they're not very impressed by him. Um, They find Newton at a time later in his life when he's, you know, studying alchemy and they're like, this isn't even proper alchemy. And then <laughs> then they find this guy who is fictional. And this is like, again, you know, they're muddying the waters here because so far mm-hmm. most of the stuff, unless it's like an alternate branch of history that didn't happen, they've had real people like the actual Archimedes and the actual Newton. But then they meet this totally fictional character, uh, Nicholas the Cretan, who is the servant of a wealthy philosopher, Phocian the Touched, who spends all this money trying to prove his teacher is correct in his theory about horses always having at least one foot on the ground, even when they're galloping, and eventually proving that wrong and going mad (laughs) and dying (laughs) and doing all this elaborate stuff. I think in the book they kind of talk about how it's something that gets used with insects, but it reminded me, I I don't know if either of you ever did this, but in physics class in high school, we did a thing where we measured velocity with a ticker tape. So we had like a a thing that made dots on a piece of paper with a regular time interval. And then you attach that to a truck, basically. It was like a little wooden block with wheels on it. And then you tip that off various things to see how it affected the velocity. And so you'd get these different patterns of dots on the paper. You do this experiment by tipping them down like a straight slope or a curved one and all that kind of stuff. And it's felt very much like that. And then also, obviously, it's uh, the uh, the famous photography experiment where there was a bet about whether or not horses ever had all four feet off the ground. And they did some high-speed photography to find it. So it's, it's drawing on a whole bunch of stuff um, mm. to sort of tell this parable about Science is not necessarily what you think it is. And the people Mm. we think of historically as scientists are not necessarily those people. And what is the difference between science and magic and religion? So it's a really, I've, I enjoyed this bit. I think this was, Mm. that was one of my favorite bits of the fiction, but I also really enjoyed the way that they talked about that in the nonfiction parts. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of the allegory of, at what point does an artwork go from being brushstrokes on a canvas to like which stroke is it that it suddenly turns into art and you know compared to science where which bit is the science is it the hypothesis is it the the theory or you know they're very hard to put the exact pinpoint of what it is that was great that was really good and to show that it is a messy and blurry space that, that doesn't have all these clean cut lines which I think flies into the face of what science is often presented as, is this extremely clinical, extremely clear process. And they do that a few times. They sort of talk about um, science as being fallible, science as being human, there being biases irrespective, and that good scientists uh, say things like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And they do a little bit of that themselves. 
Maybe not as much as I think they should have, <laughs> uh, <laughs> based on the kinds of claims that they make in the book. It is in there. It's in there. And then, yeah, this is where they're doing all their let's make humans artistic. And the kinds of stuff they talk about in the nonfiction chapters here are also things like, what is the function of language? You know, what what do we use that for? Um, you know, and then they talk about lying and being able to detect lies, which leads to the development of empathy and being able to imagine what someone else is doing or being like. And even if you can't do that exactly, doing it a little bit well is still beneficial. And, you know, and this is also during this bit when they're talking about um, changing the story is when they talk about the idea of overcommitment as a, way of explaining altruism and how that also fits in with the idea of religious ideas and all that kind of stuff. So there's a we're kind of mashing it together a little bit now because there's too much to really discuss everything. But quickly, before we go back to that fiction, just to say a few things we haven't touched on too much. They do have a whole chapter about what do we have free will? <laughs> like just a just a small subject to deal with in maybe 15 to 20 pages in short no we do not <laughs> it does it does seem like that is the conclusion but i did like the way that they said that we all have this idea because people like to you know they want to be able to tell the future they have this sort of paradoxical understanding in that they believe that the universe is predetermined enough that someone might be mm. able to tell you what the future is but also that those rules don't apply to me because the reason I want to know is I want to change my future. Um, yeah, and I was yeah. like, yeah, that is that was really interesting. I like that a lot. Mm. Like The question isn't like, do we have free will? It's like, what degree of free will do we actually have? Yes. Oh, now, now, it's, oh, now we're all feeling like our brains are getting We're just going to go deep. into it and <laughs> you know, oh, we'll move on. But, yeah, we don't have free will. I've solved it. <laughs> few few i say <laughs> and the elf queen also turns up in the fiction again at this point and they've talked to her a few times she came to visit them after they sort of undid their undoing of the elves and was like this is my world now you can't mess with this we're here and you can't get rid of us and then when they're doing their thing trying to encourage art she does turn up and goes what are you up to and the other wizards are like not up to anything it's fine we just think they're a bit boring we want to make them a bit more imaginative uh but Rincewind isn't there because he's off trying to teach the actors and so she goes looking for him and she tries to seduce him and as we know Rincewind is not really seducible uh except with potatoes and so he tries to just <laughs> think about potatoes and she gets a glimpse of the plan which is that he's trying to develop history to the point where William Shakespeare will be born and will write a very particular play. And she takes his copy of the play that he's carrying with him with her. And this is great because we also haven't talked about Arthur J. Nightingale, who is not, we never meet him, but we do sort of hear a little snippet of some of his work and we get an impression of what it's like when you go to see one of his plays because he is the alternate William Shakespeare who is awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh, it seems a bit rough um but that was very funny i enjoyed that a lot rufus the third oh yeah <laughs> oh terrible name for a play though i mean you can come up with better than that surely but yes they eventually do get everything into place they come back to d time and the conditions are all right for william shakespeare but He's not there. And this is where they do a real Back to the Future sort of montage where they find out that um, his parents never met and they fix that. And then uh, he's born, but he's a woman and his life was totally different. So they have to change it. So he's born as a boy. And then 
Um, they have to go back in time again to make sure he doesn't die as an infant, and they have to make sure he doesn't die as an adult, and then he doesn't get hit by a meteorite. Like it's just yeah. <laughs> And then eventually after, and it's implied that there's a lot more of these steps than we hear about directly. Eventually, yes, he's born and he's alive and he's going to write the play. And they're like, yay, this is great. Um, this was a lot of fun, this bit of the book. I loved it. I think it was my favorite bit. I, just, I love time travel capers. Yeah, me too. Um, also, <laughs> such a great pun title for that chapter. It's called Lack of Will. Oh, that <laughs> went right past so... me and I love it. Very good. Very good. That's followed, by the way, by a non-fiction chapter about chaos theory, complexity, and emergent dynamics, mm. uh, which is, you know, to sort of say, why can't we just predict the future and know how it's going to go? How come if we change history, it's it's hard to know exactly what will happen? And also the fact that time travel could be real, according to physics, and some versions of time travel work out without paradoxes. So, yeah, again, maybe a bit tangential to the central point that they say they're trying to make but quite interesting uh, and related to that bit of the fiction, at least. But we're getting sort of near the end of the book because they do manage to get Will together, give him the idea for the play. The elf queen also has read the play, thinks it's great, and ignores the advice of some of her older elf like companions who are like, we think this is a trap of some sort. And she's like, no, this play is great. <laughs> and she helps him as well because the wizards get drunk while they're trying to explain it. But then Hex explains that, look, there's a chance that the performance won't actually get finished, and so it won't work. And if that happens, the humans will kind of get the idea, but they'll be three years too late, and they won't make it off the planet before the whole place is destroyed by a meteorite. And they're like, oh, this is no good. Um, Okay, well, we've got to go and watch the play and make sure it happens. And sure enough, the queen is there and tries to intervene. Uh, Rincewind's backstage watching. There's a whole bust up where they all have a big fight but the play concludes and has the effect on human culture that this new idea of what elves are like is introduced this means that humans start to think of them as kind of harmless and stupid they're tiny little creatures with wings and eventually they stop believing in them because they're so ridiculous and they don't fit their worldview anymore and this robs the elves of their power and they don't really go on to how that works out. They just sort of say, and the play is on and now everything's okay. And, <laughs> and which I thought was okay. But also they quote Lords and Ladies. They, they have the bit in this book. They do quote from quite a few different Discworld books, but they quote the bit from Lords and Ladies when Nanny Og is talking to Jason Og in the smithy and telling him it's the elves that are coming and using all of the euphemisms for them. And he's like, oh, but they're so nice. And on the Discworld, these stories have propagated, but it hasn't robbed the elves of any of their power. And I guess that's because the rules are different there. But it did make it feel like when they've gone out of their way to quote that bit of the other book, and then they've made it work differently on Roundworld, that they are kind of going over the same plot a little bit. Mm. Is this where they talk about how the elves are enchanting because they enchant and they yeah. are, yeah, all the words that don't actually quite mean nice, but do mm. mean <laughs> powerful mm. and magical. Mm. Um, but, I mean, that's the end of the fiction, though. It kind of does end. I, I felt the fiction kind of ended a bit abruptly. Like, we don't go back to Unseen University with the wizards. There's no sort of epilogue with them where we find out what they're doing now. It seemed it seemed a bit weird. And then there's that one last non-fiction chapter afterwards, which is May Contain Nuts, uh, <laughs> reference back to a joke right at the start where the patrician asked the wizards if they could really prove if there was no nuts in anything. And the wizards <laughs> were like, well, 
no, not 100%. <laughs> like, you can't <laughs> definitely prove that. Where they basically sum up their their ideas. The stories that we have evolved from us taking them literally to them being allegories. And then when we start making pictures of things, we don't have to believe in them anymore. Like, we don't think they're real. We now accept them as fiction and we understand them as fiction and we move on and think about other stuff. And they have this sort of, they also say, like, right near the end, you know, science is not the answer to avoiding the influence of, of bad stories. It can help you, but it's not the thing that will save us. We need to make good stories, which I thought was a nice note to end on. And as much as I, I feel like I've been a bit harsh on this book, I did enjoy reading it. I think it goes off the track and it's not as coherent and good as the previous one. But, you know, the the central idea of it is still quite compelling and, and interesting, even if I'm very doubtful about how robust the science in it might be because some <laughs> bits of it seem maybe a bit shaky. But yeah, I don't know. How did we feel when we got to the end? <laughs> a little bit relieved. No, um, I I think uh, I, I have a lot of reticence with any time travel narrative purely for the structural purpose of you, you, where, where do you draw the line? When is it over? When is it finished? So I think where it ended was a satisfying we don't have all the answers. They're not back in Unseen University. They've meddled enough. An outcome has been achieved. I feel confident and comfortable in ending at this point. <laughs> and, and a nice balance between the, winning the victory over the potency of the elves without robbing humankind or the Uggs of their imagination and their creativity and their, the things that propels them to grow and progress as a species so yeah that was structurally satisfying i think for me mm. well favorite bits that we wanted to talk about that we haven't yet mentioned i've made a note of a few of mine that we haven't really touched on as we've tried to get through what is a very dense book and look it's probably worth us saying again if you haven't read this if you want to know what they're actually on about, you probably should give reading the book a go because we have not been able to touch on 10% of the things that they introduce. It's a huge, huge undertaking, as you said, Atlanta. So, yeah, please, please have a go. I have a few things I really enjoyed, like the repeated slams on um, airport novels and Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, they were saying that if you sort of drew from 10,000 commonish words and arranged them into different combinations of 100,000 words, which is a conventional book length, they'd read something like cabbage, patronymic, forgotten, prohibit, hostile, quintessence. And there's a footnote that says, but Joycean scholars would be furious if we excluded Finnegan's Wake, which reads exactly like that. (laughs) 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 Uh, Such a good burn. Rather than like a thing I like, there's a point that I wanted to raise, which I found interesting, because the whole thing about William Shakespeare being integral to human society in jasper ford's thursday next series is a whole thread about the importance of william shakespeare as well and without spoiling it there's also a time travel narrative around that and they're different like it's story-wise they're very different but i just found it so interesting that at their core they both had this idea of how like widely like isn't like because he clearly was like he did a lot of stuff for language blah blah but there's also like a lot of mystery surrounding him because no one actually knows when he was born or what his life was like or really who he was. So it's just fascinating that he's this really important figure who little is known about and that two authors have 
tackled it in this way. Well, I guess four authors if we can. Like, so yeah, probably more. But yeah, I thought I wanted to flag that because that was one that immediately jumped to mind when I was reading it. I was like, oh yeah, Jasper Ford did this too. Yeah, it's just I mean, such an easy go-to in terms of historical artistic figures. But uh, mm. it, or is it too easy to actually do that? I th- well, I think there's a few things going on. I think in this particular book, it's Midsummer Night's Dream that's the kind of mm. key thing. And, I mean, which is something that also comes up in the novel Lords and Ladies. Like, there is a play in that that's pretty much a Midsummer Night's Dream in some ways, which is part of what summons them into the real world. Again, it's ground that the Discord's already trod. Because it's like stories about stories and the humans understanding that means they've got a deeper understanding of stories. But yeah, I just thought the William Shakespeare thing was interesting. I mean, like Doctor Who also covers William Shakespeare, so... Yes. Yeah. That's right, listener. We've gone down a leg of the trousers of time where not only did I say time is a flat circle, but Liz was the one who brought up Doctor Who. If you were playing a drinking game, probably you'd have to skull. But we absolutely do not advise that. Well, I mean, look, if you're an English fiction writer and you're going to talk about the importance of stories, he's kind of (laughs) your biggest touchstone, I guess. And they do. I mean, I think if there's one thing missing from the book that they mention other cultures, but very in passing. And they do at some points try to make the point that, you know, we're talking from a Western context, but they very rarely talk about what other contexts might be. I mean, the one main one they talk about is the idea that Chinese history doesn't contain what Western science is. It has its own kind of idea of knowledge systems. And they posit that's because there's no monotheism in Chinese history. Mm. You know, there's the, there's the celestial bureaucracy and there's the idea of gods everywhere and pantheism and the various other forms of religion that took place there. And that doesn't lend to the idea that there's one true way for the universe to work. And I was like, that's a really interesting idea that I've never heard before, but it's one of the few times that they talked about other ways it could be. Yeah. Echoing something you said earlier about the role of Rincewind in this book, I mean, yeah, definitely comes into his own. And there is something almost beautifully mirroring of almost every Shakespeare play that the slightly lower status character is the wise one or saves the day. And you do see again and again while the wizards are busy getting into intellectual heated debates and messing around Rincewind's simplicity and uh, it means he actually handles the situation much better and gets stuff done. Um, that was really satisfying. Uh, I really enjoyed that aspect as well. And uh, with that sort of sense of play within a play, it feels like he's mar- yeah mirroring the Shakespearean low-status character in that way as well. And and there's dick jokes throughout the book, like they when they when yes. Winston is teaching early humans to um do cave painting. There's like a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's, he's trying, trying to draw to a spear, but he accidentally draws something else and realises <laughs> yeah. his mistake. Yes. Yeah, so I, that's, again, I think, mirroring of, of Shakespeare. Yeah. Bawdy humour. <laughs> There's a really early joke when Rincewind's talking to Ponda and he brings him the note from, from Ridcully. Uh, you said that every so often some kind of intelligent life turns up, hangs around for a few million years, and then dies out because the air freezes or the continents explode or a giant rock smacks into the sea. That's right, said Rincewind. Currently, the globe is a snowball again. So what is the faculty doing there now? Drinking beer, apparently. When the whole world is frozen? Perhaps it's lager. <laughs> so I, <was> like, <laughs> I don't even know that much about beer, and I find that quite funny. I had a quick pun that I enjoyed when they were like in the cheap seats of the globe. They were so cheap that they had to stand, so they were the 
cheap feats. Cheap feats. So, oh, that's right. Yeah. And later on, they talk about getting bums on seats, and then someone says, "Bums on feats." Bums on feats. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, I also really enjoyed how one of the wizards says, "This world is a cheap parody of our own." Mm. <laughs> and I was like, "That's very funny." Anyway, there are there are actually quite a lot of good gags. We probably don't have time to go through them all. There's a couple of things that I want to. I do want to briefly touch on at least. Uh, again, there are a few things where I feel like they could have gone into more detail. There's one bit in one of the early chapters where they very briefly mention the idea that feminist myths are reshaping the way human narrativium works. And they say something about, but we could put that right. And it's not really clear <laughs> what they mean by that. And <laughs> I feel like that could have done with some unpacking, maybe. I think this is something that gets touched on in one of the later ones where there is a significant female character who's not the evil queen of the elves. But that was a bit of a weird one. So that, that one just hit me as, as being like a thing that didn't get expanded on. But to go back to Rincewind, there's just so many good gags and he's the one who points out so many things like when the wizards are sort of explaining that they've been talking to this guy d and telling him about how magic doesn't work here but they stepped out of a magic circle and they said that they were from another planet and they're like and, and rinswin's like so let me get this right <laughs> and you're like yeah well, thank you um there's also some really good puns and some that i don't think i got uh there's a great one from one of the um one of the, there's a, well, the chapter title is The Shellfish Scene, which is a parody of uh, Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, which is where they're talking to the non-human UG people who uh, live surrounded by shellfish middens. But when Rincewind's complaining about the fact that they don't really have a culture or a language, it's all point and kick, he says, which is clearly a computer pun because they don't have a computer language. It's all point and click, or in their case, kicking. <laughs> And yeah, there's just, there's lots of little things in there. The bit where we meet Granny Weatherwax and they talk about how she's a lightning rod for narrativium and just, it, she just can't <laughs> go out into the woods for a walk without someone coming across her and trying to help her out because it's part of their mythic quest. <laughs> so great. So good. That was very good. There were a few things as well that really resonated with kind of the world that we're currently living in, in these coronavirus riddled times. I feel like I have to be explicit and say that because, you know, who knows? Someone could be listening to this in 10 years time and they don't know what the hell we're talking about or they're not. On the not space clear. elevator on their way to the banana planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or they do. And uh, Corona times is all the time. Oh, God. Time. Oh, no. <laughs> this one struck me because it kind of feels like it's very relevant to our current situation because they're talking about in one of the chapters how not impressive it is when you make a correct scientific prediction. For example, like when people were like, oh, you know, the, the Y2K bug could be a big problem. And so people spent billions of dollars fixing it. And then it, and then it wasn't a problem. And people were like, see, you got all worried about nothing. And you're like, no, no, mm. we spent billions of dollars fixing it. That's why it was not a problem. And in the same way as people now are complaining about the fact that we're, you know, stuck in lockdown or with whatever restrictions we've got, are looking at the case numbers and going, they're not that high. And you're like, yeah, imagine how high they would be <laughs> if we weren't in lockdown. And there was some stuff about how news stories are written and what stories are selected. They talk about the fact that newspapers in particular, but also other kinds of media, select stories on their importance as a story rather than their actual information or factual content, which I thought was also very relevant to now. I enjoyed one of their chapter titles was we wanted to have a chapter on free will, but we decided not to. Uh, and I enjoyed that very much. 
I think that's from one of their other books, but yeah, that's that's a great yeah. one. Um, oh, one thing, and I won't go into this in detail, we don't have time, but they also did talk about the Milgram experiment, which is famous when mm-hmm. I studied it, when I studied the history and philosophy of science, where people were asked to electrically shock people if they got answers wrong in a test. Supposedly, what it showed was that people would obey authority even past the point of their own ethical considerations. But about 10 years after this book was published, there were some pretty big questions asked about that study. If not its actual validity of what it found, then at least the conclusions that it drew from them. So when that popped up in the book, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> you don't. I know this was still accepted in 2002 because that's not that long after I studied it in university. But still, it's we're very skeptical about that now. So, yeah, that was another one where I was like, oh, no. There was some sort of extrapolation about the individuals or the mavericks who didn't press the button in order to create the pain, suggesting that some of the people who refused to participate in the experiment and inflict pain were people who had lived experience of torture themselves who had, or relatives who had been in the camps earlier. So, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, a lot of narrativizing around something which we now know to not be um, uh, one of the cornerstones of scientific knowledge that it was at the time we've covered a lot of ground this episode but there are some things we just didn't get to some of them i think quite important so keep your ears peeled for a way you might hear some more commentary on this book probably via our subscriber only bonus podcast the oop club so we've got a few questions this time. The first one comes from Sven Vite. Actually, no, let's, let's just nip this in bud. They're all from Discord. So the first one comes from Sven. How long did it take you to realize that Ponderous Dibbons has a pun first name? I realized it just now. Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like I've known for a while, but I'm also always actively seeking puns. So I'm not sure if I'm a great example. <laughs> is, is it a pun if it's just the word? It doesn't really have two meanings, does it? Like his name is Ponder because he ponders things. Is that is that a pun? It's a single entendre. It's, it is. It's a good point, though. I think when I first read him way back when, I don't think I really thought about his name that much. And then at some point I was like, oh, yeah, Ponder. Huh. I don't think it's the funniest name that Pratchett's ever come up with, but it is very, very appropriate. I do mm. like it. Yeah, as in, like, I think to realise that it's wordplay that's appropriate to his character because Reed Cully or whatnot, like, there's names where I'm, not Reed Cully's, but, like, when Pratchett introduces a villain sometimes and I'm just waiting for it to be a pun and it's not, that always throws me. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, so the next question comes from Joel Molan. On the oft-discussed topic of Rincewind, how is he in this setting as an almost member of the faculty? Do you find him the same or do you read him differently? Now, Lanta, we didn't we didn't cover this up the front, but have you read other Rincewind books or is this your first one that he's in? It's not the first. I have a terrible habit that a lot of Disworld novels for me actually kind of blend in and I, I lose the ability to tell one from the other. Um, but I think that's a lovely feature of it for me. It's a magical place I go and, and see people. Um, but I do, I do feel like from my memory that he is playing a more active role in this one. Yeah, yeah. That's been my feeling for this one. Yeah. I actually found the entire faculty as well seemed a lot more uh, capable in this book. Mm. Like, they actually all have interesting things to contribute, much more so than normal. Like, usually they've got a few, like, witty barbs here and there when they're fighting with each other. But in this one, I felt like most of them contributed something. Although, again, none of them really have that distinct a personality apart from the Dean. 
Um, but I really like Rincewin in this. I mean, there's one bit where he's drunk on the power of having an idea that's not just running away. And I was like, yes, this is so good. Because he's he's acknowledging what he's been and then he's also becoming something else, which is the one who looks at the rest of the faculty and goes, you're a bunch of useless old men in beards, aren't you? You don't know how the real world works, but I do. Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed that. I think he's reached that, like, sweet spot of... He's had enough life experience that he's not as scared. He's got some confidence and he's also not cowed by the authority figures. So he's in this kind of nice place where they still like look down on him a bit, but he just does not care or, that's, or does not care in a way that he might have previously cared about both the situation and on how he's being viewed and treated by the others. So yeah. I kind of, I kind of liked his whole thing in this one. They're sometimes yeah. still quite mean to him. Like, there's an early bit where Ponder claims that he could get rid of him and just write a program for Hex that would do rinse wind stuff. Uh, and it's got a great <laughs> pun because he's just said, or maybe it'll just say rinse wind run, which I was <laughs> like, yeah. But that just reminded me also really strongly of the bit in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where Zaphod's picking on Arthur and tells him that they could replace his brain with just a really simple electronic one that would just think things like, huh? And what? And where's the tea? <laughs> uh, it was very, very similar joke, but I enjoyed that. Yeah. And there's a deep satisfaction in the fact that he's been given all these titles at the university purely so they can fulfill the requirements of various grants and other things. Um, and no, no one wants those titles, but he actually comes into his own in this narrative, in this story by having to actually fulfill the role of some of those titles, which is very satisfying. But also there's this sort of ongoing you know, it, it all started as this team building exercise in the woods, shooting paint at each other. But they're actually, this is an adventure story. The, the wizards are working together and going on as a team to fix a mistake and then fix that mistake and then fix that mistake after that. So they actually do fulfill that. And that is ricocheting off the science in the, in the book about talking about extelligence and tribes and all of those sort of bits of evolutionary philosophy about groups working together. So, yeah, I, I did enjoy that. Yeah, and actually I'm just looking at his list of titles again, and they are very relevant. They include being um, the Chair of Experimental Serendipity, uh, the <laughs> Professor of Virtual Anthropology, entirely accurate to what he does in the book, and um, also the Chair for the Public Misunderstanding of Magic. Uh, which, as the person who points out that Rid Cully is not doing a good job of convincing people magic is not real, seems, <laughs> again, very appropriate. I reckon my favourite scene in the whole book is when the wizards have just come back to stop the wizards defeating the elves and now they all have to get in the circle and yes. <laughs> uh, each of the wizards has to decide which wizard's going to get in that circle and they all start fighting and the two Rincewinds just flip a coin. <laughs> and they just accept the answer as well. There's no, like, going to stab the other one in the back or anything. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, they have their... We didn't talk about that, but they have their sort of cake and eat it to their moment with the time travel, where it's whichever one goes back now remembers both versions of history and being both wizards. And you're like, okay, look, you're in an artificial world. Let's just run with it. I also yeah. really enjoyed the the beginning of that scene where they had to like whisper a, a secret to their own self to prove that they weren't an elf. <laughs> and Rincewind's the one who says that's what they should do. He's like, well, it's simple. Just tell yourself something that you, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay. 
but it's just good characterization, like hearing like even just the snippets of what they all started. It's great. I love yeah, it. That was great. Wonderful. Oh, so our next and final question is from Molikov. In Science of Discworld 1, the wizards completely missed humanity on Roundworld. How do you feel about them now interacting with real historical figures? Does it destroy the suspension of disbelief in any way? It's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. And that, this is, I sort of touched on this right at the start, where for me, uh, particularly when they introduced a few things that were clearly fictional and, and the clincher was the, the whole thing with the, you know, invented philosopher, I was like, well, this is not, is not our world. It's got some similarities. There are some characters from history who appear in it, but it is another version of what Earth could be. And I was totally happy with that. Yeah, it was it was a little bit weird, but I think because I had that distance and I'm like, it's not our Earth. It's like a version of Earth in a bottle universe that copies our laws and happens to work in a very similar way. I was I was fine with it. You almost need to plot a graph for this book and be like, okay, there's four categories. There's the things that are completely true. There are things that are completely fiction. There are things that are historically accurate, but they're in a fictional situation. And there's fictional things that are historically accurate in some way. Colour code <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah. Because it's definitely a gradient. Um, they've, they've got so many different versions of the relationship between fact and fiction in this book that you're, uh, it keeps you on your toes for sure. Because yeah. the thing is, in the first book, it doesn't necessarily have to be Earth at all. Because the stuff that happens on it, yeah, there's there's some dinosaurs, but there's also the crab civilization that arises and then gets wiped out. There's this other stuff, like stuff that could have happened on our Earth. We'd never know about it. But also they go through several versions of the Earth because there's whole versions of it that just get obliterated and never get life in the first place. And they keep poking at the universe until they eventually get an Earth-like world. And it, it always felt to me like it was an Earth-like world. It wasn't necessarily Earth. And that that species that got off the planet on the space elevators didn't necessarily have to be us. And in this one, they've gone, well, it is basically a version of us. So they're kind of refining the story. They're, they're adding to it or, or retroactively changing it in this one. But I, uh, yeah, I was, I thought it was all right. I, I kind of had like a, it's kind of like Atlanta was saying, it's muddy because of all the different categories of things. And because the question specifically about interacting with real historical figures, I feel like I would have liked it if they kept their interactions with people to real people rather than three quarters real people and then like a made up sort of version of a real person. Just have them all be real or all not be real. That I think I found a bit confusing because it's not so much suspension of disbelief. It's you're not sure of what to believe. It's like the other side of it. Mm, which in a book about the importance of stories for conveying information amongst humans mm. is, is maybe something they, they could have thought of a bit more, perhaps. Yeah. I was kind of like, well, I don't know how much to trust you. It's um, like, fool me once. Shame on me. Shame on me. <laughs> shame on, uh, so Bojack Horseman has ruined that for me, and I keep being like, shame on me, noodles and rice. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, look, that, that brings us to the end of our discussion. This has been an interesting one to talk about. And look, Atlanta, I think both of us would like to thank you, particularly for taking on one of the more difficult and challenging books to discuss and doing it at a time when all of our brains are probably not working at 100% peak efficiency. So thank you. <laughs> uh, very much appreciate that. Um, you've recently had the first online sci-fi, which we, we linked to on Twitter, and we'll put a link in our show notes. So if you want to know what a sci-fi comedy debate, which is uh, sort of Atlanta's main 
science comedy gig these days looks like and sounds like you can see one on youtube so we'll link to that have you got any more coming up or any any plans for stuff in the future uh well i mean if time is like a book and you can dip in at any point there is always a sci-fi that has begun finished and is in the process of of happening um unfortunately the linear nature of our time space continuum means not at the moment um there are there are talks afoot I think there's going to be something quite exciting happening in November. Um, but in these uncertain times, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. So, yeah, anyone who's interested in science comedy debates, um, you can sign up to the newsletter, scifight.com.au, and you'll find out first for anyone else what's happening. Oh, what a privilege to know before anybody else. That's great. <laughs> before me. <laughs> yeah. Liz, is there anything you want to plug? I don't ask this often enough. But have you got anything coming out? Any, anything being published? Um, I've got a few articles on their way. Like I usually just sort of have like a slow dribble of them out that sound horrible. Like like I'm a faucet just dribbling articles. <laughs> no, but um, find me on on Twitter or Instagram if you're interested in reading about a whole host of different stuff, including graveyards. There's sometimes short stories. There's interviews. It's just a it's a real mixed bag. Yes, good and, stuff. and all of it is good. It's all good. I recently subscribed to the Saturday paper just so I could make sure I could read your articles that get published there. Oh, thank you. I've got one that I'm quite excited about that's probably coming up around next month and the month after, so we'll just see how that goes. We'll, we'll try and get on top of uh, making sure we do tweet those out through um, the Pratchett Twitter account as well, so that if you're following us there, you will see what Liz is up to. Thank you for listening. We very much appreciate you being on this wild ride with us, particularly this month when we're doing such a weird book. But also, we'd like to thank everyone who listens, everyone who spreads the word. That is the best way, by the way, if you want to help us out. Letting other people who you think would enjoy this podcast know is the best thing you can possibly do. Word of mouth is still the biggest way that people find out about podcasts. So if you know someone who likes Terry Pratchett or you think this is a good way for them to get into it and you've been hassling them to start reading his stuff, uh, by all means, please send along a link to Pratchett. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and on the internet and in all of your favorite podcast directories. Indeed, in all the ones you don't like as well. We're there. We're everywhere. We try to be everywhere. <laughs> There are some places where we're not. And if you do want to listen to us in a place where we're not, please let us know. And we'll see what we can do about getting into that place. Uh, we'd also like to thank all of our subscribers who monetarily contribute to the podcast. They make it possible for us to make it the way we want to without having to look for sponsorship or have ads or any of that kind of stuff that gunks up a lot of podcasts. Thank you so much, people. You really make this possible and you help us stay sane while doing this and allocate time to it in our busy freelance schedules and also make it possible for us to pay for all kinds of cool things. And I don't want to give anything away, but Liz, I may have found some cool stuff for us to cover for the podcast and talk about. It's going to be cool, but we'll come back to it. I don't want it. No spoilers. No spoilers. Right. Of course, there will be another episode next month. And Liz, we're, I'm, pretty, I'm excited about this, partly because it's been a while since we've read an actual Discworld novel. Because just between you and me, listeners, there's not many of them left to go, but there's plenty of other Pratchett books, so we're going to space them out. But we're, we're going back to the Discworld, and this is one that I think I've realised I've never actually read. I thought I had, and I don't think I have. I'm excited for you to experience it. It is a, a good time. Yeah, it, it is a good time. Uh, it's a good time for crime, in fact, because it is... Mm, thief of time! 
We're going to reunite with Death's granddaughter, Susan. It's going to be so good. Um, that book, of course, is referenced in this one. So I got a tiny little spoiler or two, but nothing too bad. So that's fine. Uh, and we'll be joined by journalist Ben Riley, who's going to be a great guest. So that's going to be a lot of fun. If you have questions about that book, please send them in to us. Uh, the easiest way to do that is on social media, uh, Twitter or uh, Instagram or Facebook. Use the hashtag Pratchat48 because it will be our 48th episode. It's nearly 50, Liz. Yeah, so soon. Um, what are we going to do to celebrate? We were asked this no, earlier. We no, weren't, we weren't going to do something special until the 60th one when we were going to do another sort of looking back and general questions one. So I don't know what we're going to do for 50. Should What's we do... Li- Liz, I'm throwing this to you, listener. What do you want us to do for our 50th episode? Is there something different that you wish we'd do that we haven't done? Is there something weird or special that you'd like to hear from us? Let us know. You can use the hashtag Pratchat50. Get in early. You know, <laughs> tell us. Um, I think we have got a book planned for it. But if you have a better idea, we'll take it on board. Uh, we do this for you. So please let us know. Uh, but Lanta, thank you so much again for joining us. It was a pleasure. And until next time, please know this podcast contains no nuts. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Alanta Colley. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat47. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.